Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, it is a momentous occasion. Mm-hmm. It is our first real preview pod of the season. I am so fired up right now. I think I'm as fired up as the Vandy offense or maybe the spectators. <laughs> That's bold because they're fired up, buddy. <laughs> bold and brash coming early today. We're doing bold and brash the first 20 seconds of the pod. We'll have bold and brash at the end. I might be as fired up as the spectators who were treated free beer in Dublin and a Scott Frost meltdown. Connor, were you, were you, did you have some FOMO in that moment when the, when the free beer news hit, did you think, man, I could be in, in Dublin watching my boy Pat Fitzgerald with free beer. Did that make you sad? A tiny bit, a tiny bit. And then I thought to myself, I got, I got drinks in the fridge there. We're, mm-hmm. we're good. I don't need to go all the way across the country. To, I love going to Ireland. Ireland's mm-hmm. great. I don't need to go all the way to Ireland to watch a couple of teams who won three games last year. I don't. I mean, it'd be kind of a cool experience. And the Nebraska fan turnout is second to none. And those fans absolutely deserve better because they're being treated to some crap football week mm-hmm. in, week out, and being told that it's not crap. But I still kind of look at that and say it was entertaining for everybody else. Everybody else, man. What a game. That was unbelievable. Those fruit potato skins that showed up at your table. They were delicious. They were very, very good. You didn't have to pay anything for them. That's the beauty of week zero. But week one is here. We have an excellent show lined up. Matt Hayes coming up in a bit. Talked a lot of early season storylines. I invented a game for him. Great game. Might have some trademark issues down the road with that. I run into a lot of trademark issues these days. I don't know why, but that, that'll be the case for that game. We're going to close with a week one edition of Bold and Brash and a lad of the week. But first, Will... We have a week one SEC preview, and I am pumped. I am so excited. I told you I spent all morning putting this together. I love digging into each one of these games. For those of you who have not listened to us in season before, which I realize we got a lot of new subscribers in the off season. For those who are new to this pod, first of all, thank you. Appreciate mm-hmm. it. Welcome. Water's warm. Subscribe. If you haven't, you're just randomly listening to an episode. You want to listen for gambling advice, just subscribe. We're going to give you gambling advice every single week. We're going to pick games. That's what we do. The way that we do our preview pods, we go through every SEC game. I give an over-under that isn't actually an over-under, and then we'll do picks against the spread. The only exceptions, we don't do FCS foes. Okay, mm-hmm. We limit this to just games involving SEC teams against FBS foes. So this week, that means no Vandy, no A&M. No Auburn. We will talk about those games if stun- something stunning happens from them, though I will say Haynes King being the starter, nailed that one. TJ Finley being the starter, swing and a miss. They all swing and a miss on that. Prediction. Okay, well, to be fair, if we had, if we, I, well, I can just speak on me, but if you had asked me a bet on who it would be, I would have probably said Finley. If you had asked me who it should be or who I wanted it to be, that's more of where I was speaking from because I've seen enough TJ Finley. <laughs> Calzada's third string. That's that's the stunning thing is I think a lot of this has come out in camp, and I think Brian Harson truly looked. And we're not get too in depth here because we have a million things to get to. But I I truly think Brian Harson looked at the way that things played out in camp and saw I've got a quarterback that's still limited with his shoulder deal, and TJ Finley is looking like a guy who's taking the next step. Uh, I thought he was great in uh, in his interview in the Adam Brenneman podcast, friend of the show. If you want, go check that out, Adam Brenneman podcast. But it was really interesting kind of seeing the way that this developed, and then it was pretty obvious when it was announced that he is indeed QB1. So we'll have a lot more TJ Finley takes in the future, but not necessarily in this show today. Let's start – we in the way that we also do this – 
We go and these podcasts, usually the preview pods, they drop Thursday morning. You're getting it a little bit early this week because Tennessee and Mizzou are both in action on Thursday night. So let's start right there. Those two teams, Ball State, Tennessee, Tennessee's a 35 and a half point favorite. The over under, you know what it is. The over under is two first quarter Tennessee touchdowns. Of course. Oh, yeah. We know we're getting at least one, right? Uh, best opening drive offense in the history of organized football. I made mm-hmm. that up, but you believe me when I said that. If I actually went back and I looked at their first quarter offense last year, which is always a treat. They scored double-digit points in the first quarter in 10 of their 13 games. <laughs> That's unbelievable. You know, there's going to be going to come a moment. It may not be in this game, maybe a little bit later, but someone is going to tune into Z football for the first time. It's going to be kickoff, and they're going to be like, this is the best <laughs> ever. Ever. They're going to see the opening drive and they're like, these guys can't lose. You know what's going to happen? It's going to be their first Saturday night primetime game against a quality foe. That that's mm-hmm. going to happen. And somebody's, somebody that's just going to be tuning in is going to see this offense and they're going to say, oh my God. They are reinventing offensive football. And to be fair, Tennessee's offense is going to be darn good. But we know that mm-hmm. drop-off is there. It was there last year from quarter to quarter. That's the biggest issue that they have to figure out. Um, shout out to Vandy, by the way, for holding them to seven first quarter points last year. One of the three mm-hmm. teams to hold Tennessee to single digits into the first quarter. Um, so I say that because I think there's a really good chance that they're up 28 points at halftime and we will be treated to some Joe Milton 90-yard throws in the second half if we're lucky. But I think Hennon Hooker probably isn't going to look totally polished in the first half. And I think he might take a page out of the Joe Milton playbook by overthrowing some guys. I think he's going to be a little bit juiced up after the offseason that's been. 24-year-old Hennon Hooker has everything he's always wanted. And he's probably going to be a little bit excited. That would be understandable. So I'll actually take the under on the first quarter number and instead say it's only 10 points in the first quarter, which would be hitting double digits but not hitting the two touchdowns. I think Hennon Hooker settles in with his legs. Jalen Wright has a long touchdown as well. Tennessee wins 55 to 14 and covers the spread. Random fun fact for you. Mm-hmm. Adam Vinatieri Jr., freshman kicker slash punter at Ball State. I don't know if he's going to play. I don't even know if he's going to travel. He's on the roster. How about kicker that? Kicker slash punter. That's, that's how you know he has great genetics. It's like you do leg stuff. Get out there. Yeah. Was previously committed to UMass. Dropped his commitment <laughs> pretty late. Said Ball State. Heading to Muncie, chirp, chirp, let's go. Any other thoughts on Tennessee, Will? Um, no, I just this makes me think of the uh, Bowling Green game that was last year where it was just a mess. And hopefully the quarterback difference is going to be massive. Uh, you said some Joe Milton 90-yard throws. I would contend those are the only kind of Joe Milton throws. <laughs> but I think that having him is going to be nine day. And I remember watching that game. I feel like I was at like the rained-out UCF game. And I was watching that game. And I, I was think just you like, were, this, yeah. Yeah, because I think it was like an early start like this. Yep. And I was like, yep. what is going on with Hypo? But it seems like they were a quarterback away. And so, yeah, if you guys watched Tennessee early last season, just know that team changed radically after the Florida game. We've been kind of banging the drum um, about that. And hopefully they'll get off to that start early this year as opposed to having to adjust. Yeah, I don't think Tennessee is going to be in a position a la 2019 Georgia State. That is not oh, the last man. mention that we will have of that game. Spoiler alert, that's going to be coming back up later in the pod. Okay, Louisiana Tech against Mizzou. Mizzou is a 19 and a half point favorite. 
The over-under I have is two and a half Stetson Bennett, the fourth references. Why, you ask? Is it because they saw that great Stetson Bennett commercial for the apartment complex wherein he's the mailman? No, not because of that. Definitely not because of that. Everybody just rushed to their phones like, I got to see this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's actually pretty good. NIL isn't the worst thing in the world. Um, but Stetson Bennett will get referenced in this game because Louisiana Tech's starting quarterback, former Georgia walk-on Matthew Downing. Spent some time at TCU. He's reuniting with Sonny Cumbie at Louisiana Tech. Sonny Cumbie dunked on Mike Leach as Texas Tech's interim coach in the bowl game. And Louisiana Tech nearly dunked on Mike Leach in the opener last year, but Mississippi State had a historic fourth quarter comeback. So does that mm-hmm. mean I'm expecting Louisiana Tech to win as a 19 and a half point underdog? No, I don't think so. I don't think Matthew Downing is going to look too much like Stetson Bennett, but I think it's more like a two-touchdown game that stays too close for comfort for Mizzou fans. And here's a weird stat for you and why I kind of went in that direction. Mm-hmm. In the Eli Drinkwitz era, Mizzou has one win versus an FBS team by more than 13 points. Let me repeat that. In the Drinkwitz era, which is two years in, right. Mizzou has one win against an FBS team by more than 13 points, and it was 2020 Vandy. That was well, barely that a FBS team. Yeah, wasn't an FBS <laughs> Let's be honest here. We might want to strike that one. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't really know that we can count that. It technically counts, but it's like uh, this big old asterisk on that one. I think there's too many new pieces on that Mizzou offense for me to feel totally comfortable about them winning by three touchdowns, even though it's a Louisiana Tech squad that's got a bunch of new pieces of its own. Skip Holtz is obviously no longer there. They're dealing with major turnover after a really bad 2021 season. You could argue the highlight of their season was nearly beating Mississippi State in the opener, and that was kind of downhill from there. Mm -hmm. Zoo, they really like Cody Schrader, the Truman State transfer. He might actually be a better bet then Stanford transfer Nate Pete, who we talked about earlier in the offseason, to be the next Tyler Beatty, Larry Roundtree workhorse in the drink offense. I don't think they necessarily want that. In an ideal world, Mizzou gets more production out of the quarterback position. Brady Cook is able to be the guy from start to finish, and that isn't necessarily an issue, and they can stretch the field. I think in this specific game, Schrader, Cook, they do the damage with their legs. They win this game by 14 and don't necessarily cover. That game also Thursday night game. Got to have some buy flipping on Thursday night. I like that. I like that we got two games going on. In case one game gets really lopsided, you flip over to the other. I'm going to have both of them streaming. But for the casual person at home that's just like, oh, hey, you know, see what Hennon Hooker's up to or something like that. You could always flip over to Mizzou if that one turns into a laugher early on, which is very, very likely. Yeah, that's a really good note about the spread thing. This feels a little bit like free money. Um, but at the same time, maybe not having an established back like that is going to help drink because it seems like he was just, that was a little safety blanket every every down last year. Hopefully they can open up that playbook a little bit and maybe do a little bit more diversity on offense because yeah, his offense so far has just been like, you know, Oilers 1985. <laughs> but they needed it, you know? They, yeah. they, they did not have what what you would typically want from Connor Bazelak to be able to stretch the field in terms of mobility. Their offensive line was mm-hmm. shaky at times last year. So I, I think that you you need to be willing to take more of those chances downfield. That's that's the big thing that they need to see. Otherwise, you're just going to see teams that are going to load the box mm-hmm. repeatedly and say, all right, we know you're running the football, Mizzou. This is the way that you've typically operated. But they want to break away from that. They want more balance and need a more prolific passing attack if they're going to keep their head above water in the SEC. Okay, the game that I will be at, Number 11, mm-hmm. Oregon. Number three, Georgia. In case you haven't heard, uh, that game at Mercedes-Benz in Atlanta. Georgia, 17 and a half point favorite. The over-under I have, 
five yards per attempt for Bo Nix. Why do I say that? Why do I say that? Let's do some Bo Nix against UGA numbers. Three career games, 4.99 yards per pass attempt, 34 rushing yards, 10 points per game, 0-3. Now is the part where the, the skeptic would say, but wait, he's got his entire offensive line back. He's at Oregon now. It's different. Cool. They also lost their stud tailback, Travis Dye, to USC. Their other promising tailback, Trey Benson, went to Florida State. He's going to be playing against LSU. Uh, Oregon only ranks number 90 in the country in uh, percentage of returning offensive production. Not great. I'm not saying that it's 42 to 7 because I do think there will be a bit of a feeling out period for the Georgia offense against Dan Lanning's defense. Speaking of that, you're going to get the montage of, of Dan Lanning pictures on Georgia's sideline, and they'll probably talk about that angle a lot, which is to be expected. It's one of the big storylines of this game. I could even see you know, the announcing crew of Sean McDonough, Todd Blackledge, Molly McGrath. Great crew, by the way. Always feel uh, You talk about big game feel. That, that crew has it right there, which is not a mm-hmm. given. Uh, they'll play that up a lot in the first half, the Dan Lanning stuff, understandably so. Maybe it's like 14 to 10 at the break. And we hear championship hangover thrown out there. I'm not crazy about that, but maybe we see some of that with a Georgia defense that's got eight new starters. Um, then I think we see Georgia really sh- flex its muscle in the third quarter. Two Georgia touchdowns in, in early in the second half. Bo Nix, obvious throwing situations in the second half. That's usually all she wrote for Bo Nix. By the way, Dan Lanning has not named Bo Nix a starter. <laughs> I mean, I, call that what you will. I'm not big on the gamesmanship thing. I think if you're going to have your starting quarterback be the starter for 12 games, 13 games in a football season, you better see how he handles it. You better see how that looks. I understand the tipping the hand thing, whatever. Everybody spins that, whatever narrative they they want. But I guess in Lanning's case, he knows that Kirby's got 180 minutes of footage in the how to stop Bo Nix department. That file is deep. Even Will Muschamp knows how to stop Bo Nix. Bo Nix Gave Will Muschamp his only great moment of 2020. People forget that. We well, can't forget that. He beat LSU by like 35. <laughs> but uh, yeah, on Halloween, that was horrible. I, I will say this. you know, I, I say we just petitioned to put in some type of 15-yard penalty for coaches not naming their starters. Guys, fundamentally, we love what we do because it's so fun. But this is a kid's game. And these coaches acting like they're protecting espionage bothers me from Steve Sarkeesian saying he doesn't believe in depth charts to Oregon trying to give Auburn or sorry, trying to give Georgia some trickeration with Bo Nix, which as you said, Bo Nix is Bo Nix. <laughs> if Bo Nix is coming out there, it's not going to be people have tried to change Bo Nix for four years. So it's not like there's any Intel or jump on Bo Nix. You're going to get, it's like, ah, here he is. Bo Nix. It's like, well, I know what he's going to do. Give me a break. <laughs> you know, nobody in the NFL does that. At all. You know, nobody in the NFL goes into a season opening game and then has the 2015 Ohio State huddle at Virginia Mm -hmm. Tech, wherein they announce the starting quarterback in that huddle before they take the field. Nobody does that. It's I. That I, that's something that was like wild at the time. Looking back was even wilder, especially coming off that natty. But yeah, Belichick tried that for a little bit. And like Goodell was just like, no, cut this out because they're a business. They're a professional organization. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, college football is business. They're a professional organization and they got declining attendance. So just something to keep in mind. Just throwing that out there. We all love we all we all love when coaches are, are feeling like they're one step ahead. But that's that's one move. I'm just kind of scratching my head. But anyways, right. I think Georgia wins this football game. Thirty five, fourteen. 
They cover the spread. I can't picture myself being at a 60-minute football game wherein Bo Nix is a part of it. I just can't. Sorry. Um, let's go to one of the other games of the week one slate. Game I'm really excited for. I'm going to have sitting there on my computer as I'm at Mercedes-Benz, and I'm going to be I'm going to try and be as dialed into this as possible. Number 23, Cincinnati. Number 19, Arkansas. Arkansas is a six-and-a-half-point favorite, that one in Fayetteville. The over-under, I have 29 pass attempts for KJ. That number feels high for a reason. Last year, KJ attempted 30 passes in a game three times. When you have the number one rushing attack in Power 5, you can do that. Mm-hmm. In those three games, though, you'd think ah, that's not really what you want to do with Kendall Bryles' offense. He probably really lacked the efficiency. Not the case. 8.8 yards per attempt, 8 to 1 TD to INT ratio. He added 173 rushing yards, three scores with his legs. Ole Miss, Auburn, Bama were those games. He was good, those games. I mean, the Auburn game, yeah, that was that was a loss. It was a game that they probably should have been able to figure out ways to win, and they had some issues there, and Auburn was playing his best, best football of the season. But Ole Miss and Bama, probably his two best games of the season. So I look at those, and I say, well, you can have TJ Finley, not TJ Finley, KJ Jefferson. I'm thinking Auburn, of course. You could have KJ Jefferson attempt more passes if that's what the situation calls for. In theory, you would say, Obviously, Kendall Bryles is going to lean heavy on the ground attack against Cincinnati. Arkansas is going to follow the blueprint that worked for Alabama in the playoff. But as we know, Cincinnati has a much different defense than when we last saw it on the football field. Sauce Gardner, Kobe Bryant, MyJ Sanders, they're all gone. You've got mm-hmm. some new pieces in the secondary. You've got some new edge rushers. That that might be the way that Bryles wants to pick on, on Cincinnati. He's got a quarterback that he trusts making those reads, and there could be a path for KJ to have a more high-volume day than one would think. I still kind of look at this game and I say, I I get they lost so much production on defense. It's still Luke Fickle defense. They're Mm going to fight like hell, even though they only returned half of last year's production. You could be deceived by the numbers because in terms of rushing yards per game allowed, Cincinnati was very average, number 62 in the country, I believe. But in terms of yards per carry allowed, they actually rank number 27 in the country. So it's not just a given that they're going to be able to impose their will up front and dominate. And this is going to be some Texas game the way that it was last year. You could do the spin zone of saying, well, when when you trust your corners in single coverage the way that Cincinnati was able to last year, you could put more guys in the box. And if Cincinnati can't do that as well this year, that changes their identity. So I get that. I'm taking Arkansas to win this game, but I do think it'll be low scoring. Very, very low over under. I think it's at 51 and a half last I checked on FanDuel. I have 21-17 Arkansas beating a Cincinnati team that's not going to fall off the face of the earth, which is why they're a preseason top 25 team. Connor, bigger loss, Traylon Burks or Desmond Ritter? Man, that's a good question. That is a great question. Oh, it's so early to say. I'm going to say Ritter. I'm going to say Ritter, and everybody knows how I feel about Burks. One of Arkansas's best players of the 21st century, no doubt about it. I, he is an all-time great. I hyped him up, I mean, basically from the, the early in his sophomore season on. And I think Ritter, though, who's been the only starter of the Luke Fickle era, that's the big unknown. I mean, Ritter was there forever, forever. Mm-hmm. Guy was a four-year stud and did so many things well. I think it won't be long before he gets his chance to be the guy in Atlanta. I'm really excited for that. I've always been a, a big Desmond Ritter guy. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say him just because 
that that is a, that is a massive unknown with that team because they they still were able to move the football and do some really impressive things from an offensive standpoint. And obviously, what he is able to do with his legs is important. So I'm going to say Ritter, but I, that's that's not a slam dunk for me. Your Just question. I want to say really quick on that. Uh, Luke Fickle is a guy that I think in a couple of years people are going to look back and wish they would have hired him to some of these bigger SEC style jobs, especially with Cincinnati going to the Big 12. They're going to have more money coming in. Um, they have this guy named Evan Prater, who is like a top 150 recruit that they signed. He's looking like the heir apparent. And I just had to Google this really quick because surprise, Luke Fickle declined to name a starting quarterback an hour ago. So maybe you'll see Evan Prater, who will be the crown jewel of Luke Fickle's, you know, G5 recruiting. But Looks like they're building something over there. So just going to be fun to look back at their playoff appearance against Alabama, opening game against Arkansas, see what they're building over there in Cincinnati because it looks like he'll be there for a while. Yeah, now that they're going to the Big 12 next year, Michigan State tried to hire him. I mean, they did. I thought mm-hmm. they would have had a really interesting play to be able to do that. But um, instead, Luke Fickle wants to ride it out. He's been very, very loyal. We know his ties to the state of Ohio, so I agree with you. He could be there for a long time. Okay, Troy, Ole Miss, number 21, Ole Miss is a 21 and a half point favorite. The over-under I have, one and a half Ole Miss quarterbacks played in the first three quarters. Okay, this is why I bring that up. We don't know who the starter is yet. <laughs> don't you know it? We've got another coach that doesn't want to announce the starter. Mm-hmm. Remember the 2016 Bama opener against USC? Buddy, <laughs> do I? That was the, we're all going to crawl out like dogs and get our brakes beaten off game by USC. Infamous, infamous. Mm-hmm. If there was a cold takes exposed, uh, or freezing cold takes, old takes exposed. If there was a, a, a gif to symbolize that, it's it's the crawling. It's the USC crawling. Mm-hmm. Nobody has regretted a pregame entrance more than that USC team on that day. But what gets lost in the shuffle of that game, Blake Barnett starts that game. He mm-hmm. plays two series. The offense goes nowhere. Jalen Hurts comes in, true freshman, debut game. Fumbles, Fumbles on his first immediately. Yes. <laughs> immediately, Fumbles. yep. Lane could have easily said, you know what? He ain't it. Blake, come out here. He decides, no, I'm sticking with Jalen Hurts. Three and out, another scoreless drive. Lane sticks with him. Fourth drive, boom. Floodgates open up. That's after Barnett had already come out. And it was from the second quarter on, Bama outscored USC 52 to three. It was very clear who the guy was. Why do I bring that up? Because in that pressure situation where USC was a preseason top 25 team, Bama probably, you could, you could hear everybody on the internet saying, what's wrong with Bama? What are they doing mm-hmm. post 2015 after winning this national championship? And all that pressure mounting, mounting, mounting. And Lane says, no, I need to see what I have in these guys. I could see Lane playing both of his quarterbacks, Jackson Dart, Luke Altmeyer, in the opener. He didn't do that with Corral and Plumley because it was clear that Corral could run the entire offense. John Rice Plumley can't. We're very excited to see John Rice Plumley as a starter at UCF. Oh, yes. I think Altmeyer and Dart can both run the offense. And because of how favorable the start to Ole Miss's schedule is, I think Lane decides to let it play into the start of the year. Not in a biblical sense, a la Jim Harbaugh, who has decided that he's going to have different starting quarterbacks week one, week two. I don't know how that's biblical. We can't teach these kids to be accountable and then do crap. Like start different guys by design week one and week two because you don't want them to transfer. Pick a guy and stick with him. Sorry. (laughs) Take a guy. Take a guy, man. Just do it. Um, so I, I think that's the route that we see Lane go. I, I, I just have this this weird feeling that we're going to be talking about both quarterbacks. 
Um, so I, I think that's the way that that plays out in the opener against Troy. I know that we don't ever underestimate Troy on this podcast. We are a pro-Troy podcast. Pro through Troy. Through. I will never say another bad thing about Troy. <laughs> you hear me on that. Ever. But I think the trio of Zach Evans, Ulysses Bentley, Kentrell Bullock, I, I think they do the heavy lifting. The Ole Miss ground game looks really good. They win 45-21 to cover minus 21 and a half in that game. Okay. Miami of Ohio against number 20, Kentucky. Kentucky's a 16 and a half point favorite. Again, Preseason top 25 for the first time since when, Will? The Jimmy Carter administration? You got it. That's right. The over-under I have, 20 rushing yards for Will Levis. It sounds low because it is. This is a tricky spot for Kentucky. I'm not saying because of the opponent. I'm saying because of the circumstances. You're without Chris Rodriguez. Okay, mm-hmm. we, we, we know that he's going to be out for the opener, likely more, which – I already said I'm not as concerned about because Kentucky has prepared for this. My concern, if I'm a Kentucky fan, is this. Will Levis doesn't have two gears. He has one. He sees no C-Rod. I got to make things happen with my legs. Mm -hmm. Never mind the fact that it's a six-win MAC team and you should probably be able to just use Cavassier Smoke, who has really improved. Mark Stoops has kind of harped on that. Ramon Jefferson, the transfer from Sam Houston State. They, They should all be able to to move the chains just fine. But it's a tricky thing to balance for Rich Gangrel, the new offensive coordinator, because of the lack of quarterback depth behind Levis. Behind him, in the wake of the Bo Allen transfer, mm-hmm. you've got the walk-on Deuce Hogan from Iowa. You've got the redshirt freshman, Kaya Sharon, who was barely a top 1,000 recruit in the 2021 class. I'm not saying that as a, like, oh, the kid will never succeed, but that's the we're not talking about somebody that was picked as a blue chip guy, ready to go, ready to play from the jump. They've got to combine one FBS pass attempt between them. That's it. Man. And that's not like a sack. You can't combine for one pass attempt. I know. Yeah. And it was, it was the Deuce Hogan threw a pass when Iowa was up a billion points on a Friday night game against Maryland. So like take that for of what course. It yeah, of course who, he did. That, who doesn't remember that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely. Um, true story. My buddy, my my best friend from home, Bronson, Deuce Hogan tweeted at him one time. My, Bronson went to Iowa and Deuce Hogan tweeted at Bronson like four years ago. And Bronson's mm-hmm. been like, ever since then, Deuce Hogan, you wait. He's going to be the guy. He's going to be the man. Transfers mm-hmm. from Iowa, of course, but transfers to Kentucky as a walk-on, as a walk-on and wins the backup job, which is not ideal. It's It's really not. It's really not. So the worst thing, for Kentucky in this game. And I mean, the worst thing would be Levis hurting his shoulder in the season opener, because as we know, he doesn't slide for Scangarello. It's a little, it's a different situation than what he had with San Francisco working with Kyle Shanahan in that offense, because Jimmy G didn't run. And if he did, you've got your franchise quarterback waiting behind him and Trey Lance. So you didn't necessarily have to worry about that. Keep your eye on that in this game. Kentucky wins but only by 14 and sort of like one of those ugly 28 to 14 type of games. I want to say really quick, that's all good stuff. I feel like this guy's like a refugee from Kirk fans. He's like, please, anyone take me. I have to escape this hell. He actually, uh, in the, in the citrus bowl, he walked over to the opposite sideline and he's just like, this is my opportunity to network. I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to, I'm going to say, please, please, do I'll do anything. I'll walk on. I'll, I'll, I'll do the laundry for the team. Just just take me. I got to get away from the Brian Ferentz offense. Nepotism is totally ruining my career, man. Get, just give me a chance. He was like a Rolls Chapman. He just walked out of the hotel and he was an American. 
like, I don't want to go back to that place. Just keep me here. So, yes. yeah, I mean, hey, we see the other side of the quarterback thing with Stoops because he's like, this is my guy. I love my guy. Yeah. If you, you're you not going to beat my guy out and hats off to him, we see in the modern era that you just don't have backups when you really stick with your guy. You don't. Yeah. Um, we don't talk a whole lot of big game boomer on, on this here podcast for obvious for reasons. Good <laughs> for good reasons. But when I saw that list of the top backup quarterbacks in the country, I threw up in my mouth a little bit. <laughs> I did. It's pretty bad. It's really, really bad. I think Joe Milton was number three on that list, which is, look, I mean, then you kind of look at who's behind him. You're like, oh, they're really improving. They're really improving. And it's a good thing because it means guys are transferring and guys are starting at other places. Brandon Marcello Mm -hmm. had the story about how half the FBS transfers or half of the starting quarterbacks at the FBS level, or at least the announced ones are transfers half. There's potential for half of the starting quarterbacks in the SEC to be transfers. That's mm-hmm. a good thing. I, I'm more of the Andy Staples approach. A more efficient market is a good market. These mm-hmm. kids need to be able to get to play, especially at the quarterback position. But yeah, that is a sign of the times. Backup quarterback is not great. And it's certainly not great at Kentucky. Utah, number seven team in the country. Traveling to face Florida could end up being the game of opening weekend. Fired up for this one. The over-under I have is three references to the Pac-12's playoff chances. I usually think that stuff's overblown. I usually do. But in this instance, and maybe it's because I'm a little bit invested, I do think that so much of the Pac-12's chances ride on Utah winning at Florida because think of the alternative. If Utah, the Pac-12 favorite, loses to a Florida team coming off a six-win season with a new coach, I think that says a lot about the (laughs) Pac-12. Utah's style is supposed to travel. It is. That physical, Mm -hmm. hard-nosed defense – it's smart but explosive offensive football that's predicated on balance. You can win in a few different ways. If that falls apart for Utah with the questions that we have about this Florida defense, which has dudes but still needs to prove a lot after the year that was, if that falls apart for Utah, what an awful look that would be. It really would be. And I go back to the 2018 Washington-Auburn opener in Atlanta, Chick-fil-A kickoff game. Mm-hmm. That game was devastating for Washington's playoff chances and really the Pac-12's playoff chances because – That was the preseason number six team. And when you're a power five team with a nine game conference schedule and you have to play in a conference championship, history says that unless you're 2019 Ohio State, you are not running the table. Remember 2014 Mm -hmm. Ohio State, when they lost that non-conference game against Virginia Tech, they were still playing the eight game conference schedule. It is so difficult to go nine and oh with a power five conference schedule. It just mm-hmm. is. And then to win a conference championship as well. I think 2017, Wisconsin went undefeated in the in conference play. And then they lost, of course, in the conference championship to Ohio State. But that's why this is significant. So I, I do think it's fair to have the playoff conversation with Utah. I think that's perfectly fair if that's going to be talked about a lot. I think we get two moments in this game where we just say, wow, Anthony Richardson is special. He mm-hmm. is fun. But I think Cam Rising does as well. Watched Utah in the play-action game. Don't necessarily have household names at receivers, but their two tight ends had 14 receiving touchdowns last year. That's a lot. That's bad news for a Florida defense that, I I don't know the exact numbers on this, but it just always kind of feels like they struggle against tight ends. I I don't know why. Edgar Thompson brought up that point of your land of Sentinel. I thought it was a really good point. He's like, that's something to really keep your eye on. That was an issue with Grantham. Maybe it's because they have all those edge rushers that are always blitzing and the tight ends are running free. I I don't know what the case necessarily is. Maybe that'll be different with Patrick Tony, but 
I do think that's something to watch. I think play action, hit those tight ends in the seam, attack the middle of the field. That's the game plan for Utah. That's what I think the difference is. I don't think it's blow up any stretch of the imagination. The Swamp is going to be rocking. This is tied for the lowest over-under of any SEC game this weekend. 51 and a half points. That's it. I think Utah wins 31-24. This lives up to the billing. We're going to talk about this a little more with Matt Hayes as well on the Utah side of it because he's got some really interesting stuff to add to that as well. Will, thoughts on this one? Yeah, I think, you know, we've obviously talked a ton about this game. Um, it's good to remind the people that you have Utah as a playoff team. Uh, we're pretty high on Utah and the Utes this year. I think you did bring up a pretty interesting point that is just, what if Todd Grantham was just holding this defense back ridiculously? Like, I know Florida fans what are if? definitely rooting for that. Okay, right, but, right, right, right. But it's like, I'm thinking about this Florida team, and I'm just like, okay, so offense, like the you know, defense was more or less. Like, I saw Florida play some pretty good offensive football last year. It, it would be very funny if they showed up and they were just this lockdown defense unit <laughs> week one and, like, shut down Utah because, I mean, then it would just be like Todd Grantham needs to go to the Sun Colony and he was holding them back. But, yeah, I think that... um I think that this is going to be a really interesting one. Like you said, these are two programs just at totally different, um, totally different places. Utah's obviously had their head coach for like 14, 15 years. And then Florida is coming in for like a fresh restart. So I've said this over and over again, just telling my neighbor this last weekend, do not judge Florida off this game. This is a team that is at the height of their power versus one that's just getting started. And, you know, if you're, if you're, uh, you know, Danny Cannell or somebody, you're going to look at this game and be like, Oh yeah. Oh, mighty Florida. Oh yeah. Utah's beating him at home. Don't worry about that. This is this is what happens when you have ambitious scheduling, which is what you always want to do as an SEC program. In that this is 2020, you know what I'm saying. If this is 2021 to start the year, maybe you know Florida looks totally different. So definitely don't penalize Reddy for for scheduling these good games. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's just is what it is. You talk about Florida without Grantham, mm-hmm. uh, the Samford game. That was that was the first game without Grantham. Well, you know, I the have offense it on, look good. The offense looked good. <laughs> I have it on very good authority that a certain Todd Grantham watched that game with a smile on his face. That's not just a guess. That's uh, from what I've been told. Mm-hmm. There was there was great satisfaction with the ex-Florida defensive coordinator while watching Samford hang half a hundred in the swamp. Just saying. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm very low on Florida's defense this year. I think they'll have flashes, but I think it's going to be a tough go. And I, I I agree, though. They should be better in the long term without Grantham. I, th- I thought some of the issues that he had really surfaced the last two years, and it was very, very apparent that he did not have necessarily the, the means to fix that group. But I think they will be better in the long term, but in, in the short term, I think they'll have their struggles. Right. Okay. Speaking of the state of Utah, Utah State. As we often do. <laughs> yes. Hey, it's been a big summer uh, in terms of me talking about Utah. Spent a oh, week yeah. there. Pick Utah to go to the playoff. You know, I'm just a Utah guy apparently now. <laughs> I do want to get up to Provo so badly. Provo looks incredible for mm-hmm. for a game with that kind of ambiance. And I didn't really get the Utah thing as much until I, I was there and how in your face those mountains are. You don't have to go to like these death defying heights to be able to kind of see out and see this vast view. The mountains are just so in your face intense. We don't need to talk about Utah mountains right now. We can save that for another time. Um, Utah State. Traveling to play number one Alabama. Bama's a 42 and a half point favorite. The over under I have one Saban sideline blow up. Why that feels very general, right? Why do I why do I pick that for this specific game? You ask. Season opener, sky high expectations. In case you haven't heard, Bama received uh, all but what nine of the preseason first place votes in the AP poll. 
I'm really interested in whether Saban has a different temperament than last year where he was noticeably more relaxed because Mm -hmm. as we know, it was a rebuilding year. So he could be relaxed. You didn't have to worry about that. All the writing was on the wall. Wake up, sheeple. He was rebuilding from the beginning. All right. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Different feel this year. It just is. In a game where Alabama should roll against Utah State, um, a Utah State squad who struggled to get going against UConn UConn last week. They sure did, buddy. Did you yeah, watch any of that game? That game was insane. No, no did, did not catch much of that. Was That was one of those where I'm looking down on my phone like, Utah State, uh, do something. Poking. Yeah, wait, wake up, buddy. We have high expectations yeah. to make fun of UConn this year. You got to yeah. pull your weight. They, they took care of things eventually, but it was uh, that spread moved as a result of that game and, mm-hmm. and Utah State not covering the spread at home against a very bad UConn team. Um, I wonder if Saban sets the tone in the second half with Bama up 45 to 7. Okay, Kirby's actually been a little bit more famous for these blowups in blowouts lately. And mm-hmm. we always say they're Saban-esque because they are. They absolutely are. Kirby's had some really good ones the last few years. I mean, even 2018, that game against Kentucky where he's like minutes away from a division title and they're up significant points and he's just losing his mind on that poor headset. Mm-hmm. I think Saban could have one of those in this game. You've got Texas next week. So this is a tune-up. Maybe he worries about his team backing off a little bit too early. And he's Mm -hmm. thinking to himself, I've got that high-power Texas offense I'm going to have to face next week with Sark. And I worry that if my team takes its foot off the gas a little bit early, and if I don't send a message, then they're not going to go into that Texas game with the right mindset. That's just, I'm trying to get into the mind of Saban, which I realize is a really (laughs) difficult thing to do. As for the actual game itself, obviously return of, Bryce Young, Will Anderson, a couple guys you've probably heard of. They're worth watching. They, they are. They're going to be worth watching every single week. I am looking forward to the first game of the Jameer Gibbs experience, especially after aforementioned uh, UConn. Their tailback, Nathan Carter, he gained 200 scrimmage yards against the Utah State defense that ranks 117th in the country in percentage of returning production. Gibbs has been all the talk this offseason. He really has. Saban listed him as RB1 which that might not sound like much, but he didn't even do the or thing where he was saying, well, Roy Dell Williams and Trey Sanders, they're, they're, they're going to Jason McClellan. Everybody's going to kind of split split the workload. No, 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 no. Bill O'Brien is going to feed him the rock a ton this year. Mm-hmm. Brian Robinson was second in power five in scrimmage touches. That's not the last mention of Brian Robinson we're going to have on this podcast, a little preview for ladder of the week. That's for mostly... Um, an in-between-the-tackles guy who wasn't great as a pass catcher. I think it's fair to say that about Brian Robinson. We know that is a strength of Jameer Gibbs. Yesterday, I did the side-by-side of Jermaine Burton's career receiving numbers uh, compared to Gibbs, and Mm -hmm. they are (laughs) basically identical. I mean, Mm -hmm. really, really similar, even in terms of the explosive plays. We know that Burton has had so much more um, downfield involvement, or at least he has been running those types of routes a lot more than Gibbs has. And Gibbs still has just as many explosive plays. Burton was somehow a first team all SEC receiver and um, ahead of Cedric Tillman. But we've talked about that enough. We don't need to get mad about that again. At least that's what I'm telling myself. <laughs> My point was just to show that Gibbs is really proven in that department. I think he's going mm-hmm. to be different than any Alabama running back that we've seen in terms of skill set mm-hmm. and impact. And I know I'm not saying that he's going to be that he's going to be better than Derrick Henry. I'm not saying he's going to be better than Najee. He might be a one and done there. And I know that Najee was a great pass catcher as well, but this is kind of interesting. His only career reception of more than 30 yards was that all-time play he made at South Carolina, where he hmm. hurdles, throws the guy aside, stiff arm. I mean, hmm. it's 
one of the better plays we've seen in the SEC in the last decade, for sure. Mm-hmm. But that was it in terms of catches that went for more than 30 yards. Gibbs has, I mean, two two plays last year that went for that went for 70 yards. He's got like eight 30 yard catches in his career. I mean, he is really dangerous out of the backfield. I think Gibbs sets the tone early. O'Brien establishes that this Alabama offense has some layers to it. It might have more layers to it than last year's group did, which is kind of a crazy thought. I'll say Bama only wins 52 to 14, which would technically mean that they do not cover a 42 and a half point spread. Shocking. Right? furious about it. I'll, I'll say that this too about Gibbs. Like I, I joked about it earlier, like in the offseason, but like I just like this guy. I think he's cool. It it pains me when Alabama has some really cool dudes that I like to root for. And Saban's been finding more and more of those guys. So I'm like, oh, you're a lad. I like you a lot. And Gibbs, you know, I think that especially with Bryce Young's skill set, Gibbs is a guy that I think fits him really, really well. You know, as horrifying as it was, and trust me, it was horrifying having your team play against Mark Ingram and Derrick Henry in that style of back. Uh, I think that these type of little satellite backs could do so much more in a Bill O'Brien style offense, um, kind of running like those little angle routes and doing stuff for Bryce Young, who is very mobile and likes to throw kind of off balance. Having that little safety release valve that Gibbs can be is amazing. And then, like you said, it's almost like he's getting underrated uh, in the run game. Um, you know, I, I could go through all the other man guys that I liked, but um, it, I, I would love if they used him a little bit the way that um, – Burrow used Elair, where he was a very yeah. dynamic, a dynamic guy out of the backfield for when Burrow started kind of like looking up and down and moving guys around. Great but point. also you could give him the ball and he was a little bowling ball and he could get you a hard first down. And I think that Gibbs is a guy that, you know, he is another one who has moved away from a bad situation and could put himself in a great position for his future in the NFL. So I will be rooting for only him. <laughs> I'm going to need a camera on Jameer Gibbs's face to watch his eyes light up when he sees three men fronts and drop eight coverage. I need that. It's just big, wide open holes from these first round draft picks. He's, he's, yeah, he's going to pause. He's going to look up and be like, do I run? Should I go forward? Yeah. Where do I go? Oh, gosh. He's going to see a whole lot of those. That's why I made the, the bold prediction. I think he's going to have 2,000 scrimmage yards this year. I yeah. don't think that's that crazy. I think he has a big opening opening game uh, in, his new, uh, in his new program. All right. Memphis, Mississippi State. Mississippi State's a 14 and a half point favorite. The over-under I have is two references to last year's bizarre officiating in this game. <sighs> I rewatched the return, the punt return play, wherein mm-hmm. the officials blew a down punt dead. And the Memphis player was, uh, was Calvin Austin the third. He picked up the ball and ran it for a touchdown to make it 20 to 17. It was a huge play in that game. And you're like, we see the official. He's got his arms raised. He's blowing his hand. And they're like, oh, we can't review this because we can't listen to this for a whistle. So I'm like, I, I watched <laughs> the official put his hands up. What If that's not play dead, then then what is? And you can make the argument, oh, well, because Mississippi State touched the ball first, they technically, the ball wasn't ruled dead. But like the official ruled it dead. It was a horrible officiating game. They had that. They had the weird onside kick thing, too. Mm-hmm. Um, Mississippi State got hosed in that game. They, they absolutely did. I'm usually not blaming the refs guy. They did in that game. Memphis got some home cooking. That spread is interesting for this year. 14 and a half. They got the hook. That hook is mm, something that gives me gives me a little bit of pause. Mississippi State only beat two FBS teams by more than 14 points under Leach so far. Mm-hmm. 2020 Mizzou, 2021 Vandy. That's not Again, much. Are these FBS teams <laughs> Right? I mean, 2020 Mizzou, I'll give them credit for They're that. Pretty good. Yeah, yeah, you're right. They were like 500. Yeah. Late late in the year. Yeah. Mizzou, Mizzou kept its head above water that year. Yeah. 2021. Band, yeah. Not so much. Whenever we get expectations for Mississippi State with Mike Leach, they let you down. 
They just do. That's the way that it's gone. There is a world in which Mississippi State struggles in the opener like last year. Will Rogers doesn't get enough time to throw. Mississippi State fans are saying, oh my gosh, we miss Charles Cross so much. Remember, they've got new starters at both tackle positions. Mm-hmm. But I can't be the guy banging the drum from Mississippi State that they're underrated and then say that they're going to struggle at home against a 6-6 six and six group of five team. I just can't be that guy. Will Rogers might not be in midseason form just yet, but I think that Zach Garnett's defense, we respect the 3-3-5. Mm-hmm. I think it goes to work. I think they put the clamps on. They cover minus 14 and a half. And Mike Leach says, nah, Louisiana Tech last year, we can't have a repeat of that. Can't have a repeat of that. That was that was bad vibes all around. So I think they're, mm-hmm. they're able to take care of business in the opener. Let's go to, oh, I'm excited about this one too. Sneaky good game. I was asked uh, on Memphis Radio actually this morning, what's the game that you are going to keep your eye on SEC team against a group of five teams. So like kind of an under the radar, sneaky, good game this weekend, Georgia state at South Carolina, mm-hmm. South Carolina is a 12 and a half point favorite. I believe that spread has been coming down. It's come down a couple points. I want to say that might've been a 14. The over under I have is two Spencer Rattler touchdown passes. The last time that Spencer Rattler did that against FBS competition was the 2020 Cotton Bowl against Florida. It's been a minute. What a day for all of us. Well, and it wasn't, you know, the 2020 version of Florida on the field that day. It was the 2021 version of Florida. So, you know, kind of an exhibition game. I don't know, depending on who you ask, specifically if you ask Dan Mullen, that's what he'll say. So really that kind of has an asterisk over it. Take that for what it is. This is one of the most intriguing opening weekend matchups. The Rattler angle Obviously, a big part of that. You know that his adrenaline is going to be flowing. Can he settle down and kind of get get into the flow of the game, get the ball to the outside for all of those weapons? Can South Carolina have a balanced attack and get that running game going after it only had a 100-yard rusher once in the regular season against FBS play? I mean, that 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 was such a, a frustrating thing. Oh, and that was also against Florida, I'm pretty sure. I think you need to get Rattler those high-percentage looks early and throw a lot out of the gate. I actually, I, I usually say, you know, rely on the run game, kind of let the game come to him. In this case, I, I think it's so important that he gets into a rhythm early because the later you get into that game wherein it's close and he's thinking about all these things, about all these people talking about how, how they're rooting against him and, you know, he got benched last year and see, you know, we, we overhyped Spencer Rattler yet again. Get him into the flow of the game early and feeling like himself. Georgia State ranked number 109 against the pass last year. I just think that with Jaheim Bell, Austin Stogner, Josh Van, Juice Wells, we know those weapons are there for South Carolina. There's also the other interesting part of this, really interesting, the Sean Elliott factor. Friend of the show, Sean Elliott. So glad you got to this. Yes. Yes. Why is Sean Elliott a friend of the show? You might be asking if you're a newer listener to this podcast. Because when we did our listener's choice it just meant more podcasts back in 2020. We did the 2019 Georgia State Tennessee opener, and Elliot actually came on. We interviewed mm-hmm. him. Sean Elliott is group of five Pat Narduzzi. He loves to slay the giant. The mm-hmm. Tennessee game happened. He nearly went into Auburn and stunned the Tigers last year until TJ Finley saved the day. He was also mm-hmm. an assistant for arguably the most famous opening weekend upset in college football history. It's not arguably. It is the most famous opening weekend upset in college football history when App State went into the big house and stunned number five Michigan. Mm-hmm. On top of that, you've got him returning to South Carolina where he served as an assistant on Spurrier's staff. 
He was interim coach after Spurrier resigned middle of 2015. Really, really interesting sliding doors moment for South Carolina would have been if he had won two or three games as the interim head coach instead of one, and he was put in a really tough spot. Mm-hmm. But if he had won a few more games and been given a fair shot to win the full-time job instead of South Carolina throwing all that money at Will Muschamp. So you got that element. There's kind of a little bit of a revenge element there for Sean Elliott. He mm-hmm. and Beamer were on the South Carolina staff together back in 2010. Elliott grew up 35 miles from Columbia. His family lives on Lake Catherine, just outside of Columbia. My guy, Ben Portnoy, wrote this for the state after he spent some time with Elliott in Atlanta over the summer. The rise of Georgia State in Atlanta is pretty remarkable considering where it was. Like mm-hmm. Elliot thought when he showed up for his first day at work, which he, he he accepted the job sight unseen, he thought he was walking into a penitentiary the first time he stepped foot on their facility. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was that bad. It really was. This game means a lot to that guy. He is going to have the lads fired up. There is no doubt in my mind. There's a scenario in which we say on Saturday night, wow, Sean Elliott, He just sweat through eight shirts. He led Georgia State to another opening weekend upset against an SEC foe, and everyone on the internet is trying to dunk on Spencer Rattler. I could see that scenario. That that exists. It's not impossible. But I'm going to take South Carolina to pull this one out by single digits, 24-17, game that stays really, really close, and it makes us think that that angle is about to happen, but then it doesn't, and we're reminded South Carolina – they got some weapons. They got some dudes on the outside, and they can fend off a team like this. I'm fired yeah, up for this one. These are – it's like watching your two sons fight. It truly is. We love Beamer. We love what they did last year. Mayo Bowl champs, right? Talk about bringing in Spencer Rattler, a guy that we're both a little bit higher on than a whole lot of people around the SEC who are telling you, know, what does he won? What is he – well, pretty much every start he's been in. But, you know, for this entire year, the tone of our South Carolina coverage is probably going to be some South Carolina or the underdogs. We want to, you know, hopefully they can build something they're here. They're going to be love- the underdogs in like seven other games that they play too. Remember that. This is one right. of the few games that they're going to be favored. Yes. But for the course of this game, man, that would just be delectable. That shot Elliott – that shot Elliott – you know, like you said, interim head coach in 2015, which great job bringing that up. You know, that, that a lot of people have forgotten. Yeah. That a lot of people have forgotten that that was, you know, on the way out of the whole Spurrier debacle. And, and, you know, it's funny because I knew I had known him from something before this, but point being, obviously, you know, they upset Tennessee in 2019. You know, people forget that was a pretty good Tennessee team. They finished eight and five. However, this last Georgia State team was the best Georgia State team so far under Sean Elliott. In fact, that Georgia State team only won seven games won the beat Tennessee. So, this is going to be a very interesting game. Uh, you know, you're talking about working in some new guys, a first-time starting quarterback for South Carolina. Obviously, he has started at Oklahoma and, and whatever that is. But um, I think that this is kind of a, like you said, he's a giant slayer. Uh, this is not what you want usually for your first kind of tune-up game because Sean Elliott makes people believe in him. Yes. And that's, that's the number one element to a team you don't want to play in this situation because you want the team to lay down. You want the team to, all right, guys, you know, that's enough. Let's go ahead and put this away. But you can almost guarantee, you know, there's always the 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 uh, possibility that stuff kind of comes out, you know, they're four, four-star players in the SEC. They could just blow them off the whistle. Like, who cares? But not saying that won't happen. That could happen. But 
if it's a close game and you're a South Carolina fan, you're like, oh no. <laughs> Not <I'll> this be, <laughs> yeah, look, I'll, I'll be really impressed if South Carolina comes out and wins this game by 28 points. That right. to me would be a great sign for a team that really struggled to impose its will for most of the year. And the ground game was a big time issue for them. These are the types of games that you would typically like to lean on that and you would trust right. that advantage. And you think that the South Carolina offensive line is going to be better this year because they've got a lot of starters coming back. You would think that they're going to be better because their running backs look like they're going to be healthy coming into the season, but you need to see it. And if you're going to be the ultimate good vibes team, this is where that's going to be put to the test because Georgia state don't care about any of that. And Sean Elliott would love nothing more than to beat South Carolina. So that one's going to be worth watching. If it, if you're, if it's just blowouts left and right in some of these primetime games on Saturday night, which could happen, um, tune into that one. Cause I think it'll be really, really good. Mm-hmm. LSU. Three and a half point favorite against Florida State in New Orleans. We'll do the breakdown now and then we'll predict some headlines when we record on Sunday. We're going to be recording before this game on Sunday. So a little bit of a weird time warp for us. The over-under I have 114 LSU rushing yards. Why 114? Well, why is that, Connor? That's what LSU averaged last year. And it's also where they ranked in FBS in rushing. 114. It sure, it sure is, isn't it, Connor? Yep. Yes, it is. No John Emery <laughs> in this one. You know, I love Noah Kane, big Noah Kane yes. guy. Will we fall in love with this LSU offensive line and Brian Kelly's debut? I don't think so. I don't think we will. Kelly has privately named a starter. He is not doing so publicly. Again, just another one who thinks he is the world's secrets um, on lockdown. Take that for what it is. I think it'll be Jaden Daniels. I think he gives you the better chance to overcome that offensive line. But I don't know that he will come out of the gates blazing, even if he is able to kind of run for his life or if he gets great protection. I think this game has sloppy written all over it. I really do. It'll be easy to think LSU, Florida State, two teams with national titles in the last decade playing in a primetime game, big time venue where, by the way, LSU is seven and one in the 21st century in New Orleans. It's a big time game in terms of history, and it's going to have big game feel to it but just maybe not so much in terms of quality football. Poor tackling angles, maybe some uncovered receivers here or there, some bad mm-hmm. decisions made from go both quarterbacks. If LSU comes out looking crisp, clicking on all cylinders, that would be a really big year one development with all of those new pieces that they have. 10 power five transfers, new offense, fourth defensive coordinator in as many years, new starting quarterback, very new look secondary. I think it's going to be sloppy. I think it's going to be mm-hmm. ugly. But LSU wins 17-14, so they don't cover, but they're able to come out 1-0. And that's all That's all you care about if you're an LSU fan in this one. It has to be. Will, how do you 100%. see this play out? <laughs> Long sigh. Um, Long sigh, and then the, the trademark Will laugh that we got. That tells uh, you yes. all you need to do. Unfiltered know. Will laugh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I said this a little bit in the Facebook group yesterday. I don't want to make people read stuff twice, but, you know, LSU has uh, – I was one of the few people who was a big enough homer to call 2019 and pretty much every year since then, this team has let me down. I'll both of them, obviously um, new coaching staff. Obviously we love to see it. The only, you know, problem here uh, for, if you're an LSU fan, right. Is that on one side, you have Mike Norvell who knows that he is, you know, knocking on the door of being on the hot seat. Maybe he's not on the hot seat right now, but if Mike Norvell beats LSU, that might be enough to save him. Just that. Just that by itself. You know what I'm saying? Because he, um, <laughs> I, I think that number one, you look at 
where kind of they're at as a program. Jordan Travis, I think, is honestly pretty underrated. I think he's a good quarterback. And I think on the other side, you have LSU, who still figuring out their offensive line issues. Um, they have, you know, they have two quarterbacks who I think are good, but you're right. They need to settle on one. And I think it's Daniels, too. I think that that's we could almost pretend that, Daniel, you know, if Nussmeyer walks out there, I'll be the first one shocked. But I think it'll be Daniels. But point being, um, the part of this game that I feel good about for LSU, I'll just be honest on this, is the size and physicality of both of their lines. Um, I know, I know, and I joked about it on here last podcast or the one before that we now have a former left tackle playing center. We have a freshman playing left tackle. I understand yep. that. Saw a stat the other day about LSU's average size of their offensive line. It's like 6'4", 330 or something. That's big. They have a massive offensive line. And their defensive line, man, have you seen Mason Smith lately? I've been hearing great things about Mason Smith. That that's the guy that everybody's just waiting for him to explode. Like LSU on the defensive line is really good. I mean, they're yeah. really good at receiver. They are really good on the defensive line. Those are the two two areas where I can close my eyes and say, yeah, I, I could see multiple guys being all SEC players. I'm not necessarily going to worry about that. I just worry about some of the spots that they could potentially be put in, mm-hmm. and how much of their performance depends on the other side of the ball. If those LSU defensive linemen are on the field for way too much time because the offense can't sustain drives, that's obviously a problem. And then those guys are gas. And then you're like, oh, you're putting all these guys in the secondary on island. So like, I agree with you, mm-hmm. but it still doesn't necessarily squash some of the concerns I have about this team. Oh, 100%. Yeah, and like I said, I'm not going to come out here and be like, oh, she's going to win by 20 or we're going to blow them up. You know, if that happens, you know, that happened against Miami in 2018 and I was pleasantly surprised. But point being, I think that, the thing that you can kind of rely on, like I said, draft issue, you have your quarterback play, which is a big deal. I understand that. For LSU, you have that building in the Superdome. You have all those angry, inebriated Cajuns. Like you. Of which I will be one. Yeah. <laughs> I will be the angriest, most inebriated uh, uh, Cajun. Maybe second to my friend Peyton that we're all going as a squad, but it's going to be a great time. By the way, be looking out for me recording on Sunday and don't ask me any hard questions. Um, <laughs> but, but point being, you know, I think that that home field is going to be massive. And I think whenever things get hard, what do you focus on? Can you beat the guy in front of you? And I think that for LSU, when you talk about the wide receivers, that's a matchup that's going to be it's going to be going LSU's way all day. I think yep. for both of the trenches, I think you know when there are some guys we talk about the guy Makai from um, Mizzou that they got as a transfer. He's not even starting. He's barely you know. So if we start rotating guys out, LSU has enough guys that have been in this system that that have experience from being on these horrible teams where they had to play as freshmen. That I feel good enough about the trench play and the receivers exactly as you mentioned to say. I feel like LSU probably covers. I'm going to immediately knock on wood. LSU wins this game. How many drinks on Bourbon Street afterwards for you? Oh, listen, uh, it's going to be less than if they lose. So <laughs> yeah, well, it's going to be for my sanity. You're going to want LSU to win this game because remember, guys, my whole life LSU ran the ball. They beat out of conference teams. Okay. And they, and I think the last couple of days, or sorry, last couple of years, Coach O got away from all of that. You know, we we've had all these weird little things happen, and it's like this is my last bastion of sanity. Is a, a week one game against an FSU team that we would beat fifteen of the last fourteen years that I've been an LSU fan. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, Will is going to be in rare form on Sunday morning when we record. I'm looking forward to it. It'll be mm-hmm. uh, it'll, it, it won't be a high volume Will pot. I can say <laughs> that right now. Yes, that's for all right. Sure. All right, lock of the week. Um, oh, and by the way, I realize I have. So I have the SEC going 10 and one, excluding the FCS game. So I guess that's like 13 and one with Florida losing to Utah being the lone SEC loss. But right. in those 11 games, I only had four SEC teams covering. Mm-hmm. It feels like it's not really a lot. And maybe that'll come back to bite me. But oh, well, um, nobody remembers. Well, at that point, just pick some upsets, man. Come on. <laughs> Might as well. Not picking an upset for my lock of the week. 
Mm-hmm. I think Ohio State covers 17 and a half against Notre Dame. One more time for the people in the back. Notre Dame is 2-21 and 21 against AP Top 5 teams since 1999. For one of those people that's telling me that it's a Brian Kelly thing, and tell me why Notre Dame beat one AP Top 5 team from 1999-2009 before Brian Kelly showed up. Okay, Not just a Brian Kelly thing. Brian Kelly walks out those doors. They're not going to start beating AP Top 5 teams. I just don't think that's going to happen. They are mm-hmm. begging you to take the points. They don't want you to know that 14 of those 21 losses were by three scores or more. Marcus Freeman said they didn't they know don't the spread. <laughs> they don't. They don't, but I do. Like and now, now everybody knows. Okay, Marcus right. Freeman said that he didn't know the spread. He was going to share it with his guys. I like Marcus Freeman. I think he's a great fit. But I think he's very quickly going to realize that slowing down a Ryan Day offense this good and trying to keep pace with it is a different beast. It just is. CJ Stroud, Jackson Smith, and Jake, but Travion Henderson, good luck, Notre Dame. Good luck. In a post-Kyle Hamilton world, that back end, I think, is really going to struggle. And if your answer to that is, well, they'll be fine because they got Brandon Joseph, the transfer from, from Northwestern, I think you're underestimating how many things Kyle Hamilton did for that defense. Mm-hmm. So not necessarily a believer that Notre Dame is going to slow down the Buckeyes. I think they roll on Saturday night in Columbus and Notre Dame has a down to earth moment as they often do in these types of games. I just want to say really quick, one of my buddies who's not like the biggest college football fan was like, Oh dude, like we got to catch this Notre Dame, um, Ohio state matches, top five matchup. I was like, dude, you need to trust me. <laughs> I don't think that game is going to be any good. He's like, well, I mean, there's playoff implications, buddy. If you thought Notre Dame was making this college football playoff and going to beat Ohio State on the way there, I don't know what to tell you. Like the fact that they ranked them this high is so mind-boggling to me because the committee and not the committee, I understand there's no committee at this point. I understand that. But rankers, whoever they may be, like to halfway look ahead and halfway look behind for this type of stuff. It's like, why would you put them in a position where this loss looks horrible? Because I'm with you. I think that Ohio State's going to cover. We both have Ohio State winning the championship this year, partially because this is their only hard game. And I don't think it will be very hard. That shows you the the gap in talent. We talked about that last year when Arkansas got into the top 10 and they had that road game against Georgia and it was still like Georgia's a three-score favorite. That tells you everything you need to know. Meanwhile, in the NFL, if a team is a three-score favorite, it's like the Bills against the Texans. It's like the best team in the league against the worst team in the league. But if that team is being investigated for tampering. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're throwing games. Yeah, that's that's college football uh, in this day and age. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's kick it to Matt Hayes. Great conversation, as always, with Matt. Auburn fans are going to love what Matt said about a potential vacancy there and who could replace Brian Arson if and when that situation does present itself. So here is Matt Hayes. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Matt Hayes. Matt, I've got a bone to pick with you. Um, we, we haven't talked about this. You have no idea Get in what's line, coming. Okay, get in line. This is, I mean, you're, you're not going to expect this. This is a heater to the grill that you think is going to be a curveball just hanging right there. And I promise you it's not. Um, right. Either we are so connected at the hip that we had the exact same thought or you stole my Vandy tweet wherein I screen, I, uh, I did a screenshot of cfbstats.com showing that the doors have the nation's number one offense. Please tell me that this is a great minds think alike situation. I, it's so let me just tell you this. All right. So I was writing literally all day yesterday. Um, I Sunday's the day I write first and 10 for not only Saturday down South, but for also Saturday tradition, our big 10 vertical. So I was literally writing all day and I took, Maybe I had to say maybe three minutes, four minutes to look at look at Twitter. So, no, I had no idea you tweeted that out at all. I literally just thought Vandy scored 63 points. There's no way anyone scored more than that. And then I look because, you know, I go I use CFB stats for like the for background information for, for the stuff. Right. Right. 
best site ever. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, this is interesting. So yes, we are literally simpatico. Yes, we are. Okay. I, that That's fine. I can accept that. I'm willing to admit that it's a coincidence. Sundays are kind of crazy things. You got a lot going on, especially when you're writing. Did you think I lifted it? Is that what you thought? Yes. Yes. It's <laughs> the exact same thing. Matt, it's the exact same thing, but like an hour and a half later. And I was like, oh my God, did, did he really? Cause it's one Wait, thing. So it was an hour and a half after you did it. Yeah. Wow. No. <laughs> what was uh, your, like I wrote, I wrote somebody should frame this. What did you write? Uh, hanging in the Louvre. Is that how you say it? You said hanging in the Louvre? Yeah. Pretty good. <laughs> We're on the same page. Well, it's actually pretty good that we are literally thinking on the same line. Okay. It's, it's strange I, as hell, actually. I'm a little nervous by this now, to be honest. I, I had a punishment ready to go. My punishment for you was going to be that I get to steal one of your correct preseason takes and not give you any credit. But like I would wait for it to happen and then just go back and squat on that take and say that it was all mine. I wait, had let's go back real quick. You must have been pissed off yesterday. Let's be honest. You <laughs> no. must have he stole my tweet. No, I, I actually wasn't because if we're on this, if if there's there's oh I, I do feel like we have different opinions, which we'll get to plenty of those in this. Right. But I, I feel like sometimes if I, if I throw something out there and I see it a little bit later from somebody that I know, like, okay, our, our paths cross a ton. That's like, okay, well, that, that's fine. We could, we could always just talk about that. I don't really consider that big of a deal. I wasn't pissed off. I had a great day. We went scalloping in, uh, in Crystal River uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, and it was a lovely, lovely afternoon, morning. I don't know what you want to call it. We were up at five in the morning, but I, I had a great day and then just fired off that tweet kind of late in the day. Once I saw, oh my God, yeah, Bandy, 63 points. Of course, they're the number one offense in college football right now. It's old, the old league course, so you get up 7 nothing against Ohio State when you're the coach in Indiana. You take a picture of the scoreboard. Same thing. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that. I'll tell you what. I mean, your tagline is much better than mine. Hanging to lose is much better than somebody framed this. But wow, that's weird. That's actually a little bit weird, to be honest. Okay. Uh, the Nebraska game, it was the most predictable thing I've ever seen. I, I said leading up to that game, I don't care if Scott Frost is a 28 point lead with two minutes left, he's going to find a way to blow it. I've, I've had a lot of people ask me this question, and I'm interested in your take as someone who used to live in Orlando. Why has nothing about Scott Frost's time at UCF translated to being at Nebraska? Well, because I think a couple of things. Um, and I think this is way undervalued, and I don't know why people don't just literally look at this stat. And that's really – I wrote about this in Saturday Tradition, in Big Ten at Saturday Tradition, which comes out tomorrow – um, we can talk all we want about, you know, Nebraska is not what it used to be. And, you know, it's this bad karma from firing Solich after he won 10 games or, or firing Polini after he won 10 games twice and nine games every other time. And you can talk about all that crap at the end of the day in 45, I believe it is 45 total games at Nebraska yep. under Scott Frost. They have 82 turnovers. You can't do that and win games. You can't. Okay. And, and they, they did it for four years with Adrian Martinez. He was he's tied to the hip with Adrian Martinez. And you can say he saw the potential with Adrian Martinez, who, oh, by the way, I think he's going to have a great year at K-State under Chris Kleiman because Chris Kleiman will figure out how to use him properly. But in, a, in an offense that's run-based. So I will say this. You can say that he, he was tempted by all the talent of Adrian Martinez, and I understand that. But at the end of the day, in those four years, he never recruited well enough for someone to push Adrian Martinez. So it's on him. That entire situation of the quarterback and the turnovers is on him. 
So then he gets to this new quarterback, Casey Thompson, who I thought played really well. Yep. Um, um, and you know what? I, you know what? I, I honestly, Connor, this is. I think this was in like the the or midway through the third quarter. He got hit after a throw, and his head hit the turf really hard. And I remember thinking, "Man, that's not good." And he his play went downhill in the second half. So I don't know what happened. I don't know if that's part of it, but I remember thinking that. Anyway, um, he throws two picks. Both those balls, I think, should have been caught. The, eh, the last one was hit. last one was rough. Last one was he whipped it in there. Look, the, I'm, I'm going to use the old Spurrier saying, if you've got two hands on the ball and one foot on the ground, it's got to be caught. Fair. All right? So um, uh, the big turnover that hurt them was the fumble with the 11. That's mm-hmm. what hurt them. That's seven points right there. And I, I, just, I just think that Fitz literally got to the point in the second half where he was thinking, I'm literally just going to run on third and nine every time. I don't care. I'll punt because eventually they're going to implode. And they did. And they did. And, and if you're if you're a Big Ten coach and you're playing Nebraska and you know how fragile that team is, you should just go into every game thinking, all right, let's just let them implode, and then we'll do it. I had here's I had a Big Ten coach text me last night and told me and told me if you have a team that's fragile like that and that has been fragile for four years and has that history of finding a way to lose one possession games, you under no circumstances when you're leading eleven to have all the momentum. Try an onside kick. Yeah. He said that literally was the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. And that's, you know, that's coaching. That's a coaching decision. Now, circling all the way back to why didn't we see this at UCF? He had better players at UCF, honestly. He had better players, and it was easier to win in that conference. I've said this from day one, Connor, honestly. I think had he chose Florida and not chose to go back home, he'd still be the Florida coach right now, and they'd be they'd be on their way to, to winning an SEC because he knew – all the high school coaches there. He recruited really well at UCF. He could have recruited really well at Florida, got himself a quarterback there, and moved and really made it work there. And he chose Nebraska because he wanted to go home. And I get all of that. But at the end of the day, when you're making a business decision and you're thinking about, do I want to recruit players to Nebraska, which, by the way, Lincoln is a lovely college town. Love Lincoln. Yep. Top five, okay? It's difficult to recruit there. And, and you, you have to recruit in the state of California against USC and UCLA and Oregon and Washington and everybody that recruits in that state. you got to recruit in the state of Texas against Texas, Texas A&M, LSU, Ohio State, all those teams that go into the state of Texas. Those are the two big places they recruit. Arizona is another place they recruit. They're, they're constantly fighting battles when they recruit. Had he stayed at Florida, made a business decision, I'm staying at Florida in the state of Florida where I know I'm going to be the flagship university in the state of Florida – and I, if I do everything right, I will get what I want out of the state of Florida and I can win a championship. But he chose the decision of, I'm going to go back home. You're going to love this because, and, and you didn't know I was going in this direction, but about a month ago, I went back, I re-ranked the hires from the 2017 cycle. And it's an activity that quite honestly should be sponsored by the Sickos committee. It is that bad. I mean, 13 power five hires, six were gone by the end of year three. Only five of them are still at their current job, which includes Frost and Herm Edwards, who might have the two hottest seats of any coaches in college football, Jimbo, Chip Kelly, and then the underrated Jonathan Smith over at Oregon State. Those are the other three in that group. I want you to guess my one through four of the best power five hires from that cycle. And remember that Dan Mullen was also part of this cycle. I can't even. I mean, Dan Mullen's got to be one of. I mean, other than the other than the bad year, 
And other than the off-field stuff in 2020, I mean, he, he led him three to three um, New Year's Day bowls out of four years. He's got to be in your top five, even though he got fired. I have him at four. Yeah. Okay, that's what I thought. Um, I can't even guess. I can't even guess. Let's hear it. Okay, so I, I had Jonathan Smith at three, still being at Oregon State, just had a really solid year. Good kind coach, of, too. I like him. Good coach, building a nice offense there. Kind of makes a lot of sense. I had Mario Cristobal too at Oregon, even though he's gone. Which that's right. <laughs> that's everything you need to know about you about this. Titles, it's hard to argue with that. Exactly, and then Jimbo, kind of a default number one for all the eight and four jokes. He did deliver deliver their best AP ranking in the final poll since 1939, and he hasn't been a total disaster. Now, has he? reached those expectations no he he definitely hasn't but i mean this cycle is so bad that in a ranking of 13 coaches i had three coaches behind jeremy pruitt in terms of worst hires can you name who those three coaches are i don't know but they're it's that's wrong because there was well, there's it's, no it's worse not. let me tell you something there's no worse coaching hire than the pe coach none and, no. and this is an all deference to pe coaches we all love growing up in high school and junior high, okay? The PE coach is the worst coaching hire. There's no doubt about it. You cannot tell me it's not. Who are the who are the three worst? Willie Taggart. Okay. No, I still take Willie Taggart. No, Willie he, Taggart to State. He Come was on. put in a brutal situation. I I a brutal I, situation. I, I still would argue those that those dudes weren't not only weren't going to class, Connor, they literally could go online and take courses. They weren't even signing on the computers to take the course. That's how bad it was academically there. Eh, that happens that's in a how, lot of places. That's how absolutely everyone was checked out of that program. So Willie really got into a mess that I don't think anybody realized. Okay. How about Kevin Sumlin at Arizona? Disastrous hire. They end up paying him a decent amount of the buyout. And that's the other thing that I keep coming back to with Pruitt is like, all right, well, if Tennessee doesn't even have to pay this buyout and they had a nine-win season with him in year two, as bad as things went in a three-year span, if they end up getting a coach who led them to a nine-win season, they don't have to pay a buyout, and they still are able to come out on the other end okay, and Josh Heupel was able to do things he did in year one, then how bad was it? How much disarray did he really leave the program in, even though we had all those defensive transfer portal you know, type guys and all that stuff? Like, There's that. And then the one that you can't argue, and I will not accept – you disagreeing with this one. Chad Morris is a worse hire than Jeremy Pruitt. Yeah, that's bad. That, that's worse. Those, but, so those, those end, three. But at the end of the day, none of those guys got the program on probation, which is what Jeremy Pruitt's going to do. Tennessee's going on probation. But but what what are they what are they really going to get in the grand scheme of things? Like what what is really going to be scholarships and and I mean depending on depending on how much you know cash we're talking about. Look, they were literally they he had his wife dealing cash. Okay, his wife. I mean Smart move. Nate <laughs> Manning did it. It worked out for him just fine. Me, he skated me, away from it. Let me tell you something. When that all came down, when that all came down, okay, I had I had an SEC coach tell me that, look, Jeremy doesn't get it. You only have one bag man. You don't have 10. That's why he got caught. So it, it's, I mean, it's seriously. I think the one thing that's going to save Tennessee is the fact that we're, we're so now far down players' rights and players earning NIL money and maybe a year or two from pay for play, that it's not going to hurt them that much. Exactly. Um, so that, that will help them, but they're, they're going to get sanctions. I don't know. You know, it's not going to be a bowl ban. It'll probably be, you know, scholarships. They'll probably be limited 10 scholarships over four years or something. Matt, you, you just made my point for me. They're limited scholarships. That's that much more NIL money that they can offer up for those limited amount of scholarships. Yeah. All right. I mean, <laughs> I, that's fine. I, I'm just, I, I just think that, you know, when you look back at that, 
you look back at that just absolutely disastrous time in Tennessee where this where they decide to hire Phil Fulmer, who God love him, what was a terrific coach, had had no idea what he's doing as an athletic director, hired Jeremy Pruitt over Mel Tucker, which to this day, again, yeah, it's tough. What in the world was going on there? Well, I, I mean, we saw Jeremy Pruitt, okay? We saw him as the face of the program. We saw him at Media Days. We saw him in his weekly press conference. What would have made Philip Fulmer, sitting in an interview across the table, talking to Jeremy Pruitt, what, what would have made him think, this is my next coach? So this, this circles all the way back to you're, you're talking about, you know, these bad hires. It's a crapshoot, man. Yeah. There are so many bad hires that people forget about. An AD is not an easy job. And at the end of the day, most of them just they go up to their president. And they say, I feel good about this guy. And if the president really trusts the AD, they say, OK, if not, they say, go find someone else. That's how it works. Yeah, no, you're right. And Bill Moose was praised for being able to lock in on Scott Frost and that deal. The worst kept secret about that deal was how much it, it was done. I mean, I remember hearing that hearing from somebody very close to the program at UCF that 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 deal was done weeks in advance. And Frost had already told his entire staff, you're coming with me to Nebraska leading up to that game wherein, you know, they're able to to win the AAC championship. And it's kind of this, Oh, by the way, and then you're, you know, your, your guy, Brett McMurphy breaks the news in the second half of that game. Scott Frost is leaving for Nebraska. So enjoy this UCF fans. And it's kind of like this bittersweet thing. And I remember Scott Frost wearing the flat build hat and all that stuff in it. But at the same time, let me tell you this real quick. The Wednesday of that week. So one, two, three days before that game, he was in Orlando with four different officials from Florida. And they were trying to nail down, nail down him going to Gainesville. So that's how close it was. All right. He, it was very close. He was, he was torn over going back home and, and, you know, going to his alma mater or the reality of, I need to stay in Florida because I can get players here. And he chose Nebraska. So yeah, I agree with you. It, it might've been done all along, but Florida made a push late and he was tempted. And it was, you know, three days before that, before that game when they were talking to him. That's a, a nice way to segue into a little game I want to play with you. It's called Whose Job Is It Anyway? Um, working title. I might have some trademark issues working against me on that one. I named the program. You tell me who their coach will be in 2023. And just for fun, because I love thinking of these things and talking about them, I'll provide a candidate for that job, no matter which way you answer. So you can say, if you want, current coach X will remain their coach in 2023. Does that work for you? I love this. So this isn't going to be like your typical, the answer is always E, right? Yeah. (laughs) See, you do read my tweets. I knew you had that. Of course I do. (laughs) All right, let's let's start with that one. That's all. (laughs) Let's let's start with Nebraska. Um, Who will be their coach in 2023? You know what's weird is they go from so you start out with okay, Doctor Tom retires, and you go with Solich because he's a man man of the program, and that's the guy Doctor Tom wanted. Okay, so he was he's this reserved guy and just very measured guy. Doesn't work with him, although in air quotes doesn't work. He wins ten games. They fire him. And you bring in the lunatic, who I love, Bo Pelini. Okay, uh, Bill Callahan. Oh. We can't forget about him. In, in between there, that was that was a disastrous hire. But yeah, eventually they get to Bo Pelini. Who? Who'd you say? Uh, well, well, Bill Callahan. Was, Bill Callahan. Was right. Right. There. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so Callahan's much kind of like kind of like uh, uh, um, Solich in that he's for the most part a measured, reserved guy. Got a little upset near the end, but who doesn't when your program's imploding? Okay. So then they go the complete opposite and they get the lunatic who I love. 
Never, never won less than nine games. Won 10 games twice. Fire him. Okay. Then you go from the raging lunatic to measured again, Mike Riley. Didn't work out. Then you go from Mike Riley to the control guy and Scott Frost, who some will call a lunatic as well. Doesn't work out. So now if you're Nebraska, do you go back to the, you know, the measured guy or do you just go get a ball coach? Because if you go back to the measured guy that is a good coach or people think is a good coach, it's Matt Campbell. Yep. He's like the obvious choice. Um, I, you know, it's if I'm Matt Campbell, I take that job. But Matt Campbell's a unique cat, man. He really enjoys Iowa State. He really enjoys being the, the uh, overachiever. He enjoys what he gets those guys that no one wants and he, and he makes them into players. He develops them into players. I don't know that he takes the job, but I would think he's got to be the first guy you go after. I'll tell you that. The Campbell thing's really interesting because he's also, it's great. I think he's one of the better coaches in the sport. I think you look at what he did at Iowa state and you'd say, wow, that guy is, has figured things out at a program without much historic success. His buyout is roughly a billion dollars. So his job security is absolutely there. They'll have him. They'll do whatever they can to try and keep him there. He also had that comment last year that sort of made the rounds when he said winning a conference title was never his goal. And if you say right. that type of thing in Lincoln, right. oh boy, that does not end well. Ask Scott Frost about what it's like to have your comments picked apart after every single press conference. He puts his foot in his mouth more than a, a baby does. But at the same time, it's still like, what are, what are we doing here? If that's, if that's kind of the guy you're going after. And Matt Campbell is one top 25 finish in six years, which again, it's Iowa state. It's different, but they're not accepting eight and four at Nebraska anymore. And if it's getting fired for going nine and four with a, a trip to the holiday bowl or whatever it is that Bo Pelini is doing, then are they all of a sudden going to accept that with Matt Campbell? It just depends. It depends on what Trav, Trav Alberts is, is ultimately looking for, but yeah, the Matt Campbell thing is going to get a lot of momentum. The kind of sneaky one that I keep have, that I've thrown out there a couple of times on these airwaves, if he has an overachieving type season would be Eli Drinkowitz. Somebody that's had success in that region, kind of been obtainable footprint in terms of that like that East St. Louis type type area of the country where he got Luther Burden from. He has ties in Texas. He's got ties in the South. Would make a little bit of sense for the type of recruiting that Nebraska has to do. And if that's the type of football they want to play, he's obviously got the proven ground game experience. Still needs to figure out how to develop a quarterback. But yeah, that's that's kind of where where I would land with that. But Matt Campbell, I agree, is going to be the most obvious name. I I love Drink. If if Drink if Drink could get that job and I mean, he'd be getting out of Dodge just about the right time, actually. Yeah. And, and the only, yeah, because, yeah, that's that's the exact point. And, and the only interesting thing that I keep coming back to is we have not seen an SEC head coach leave for another Power 5 head coaching job since James Franklin left Vandy for Penn State. And that was at the end of the 2013 season. So it's kind of like if you're in the SEC and you're winning and somebody else wants you, they're going to find a way to keep you. Unless you're going to another SEC job, which that's that was the case for Dan Mullen, obviously. Some have speculated that could be the case for Lane Kiffin down the road, but just something to keep in mind. Yeah. Okay. okay. Uh, Georgia Tech. Who's who's their coach in 2023? So, I I, I really like um, I really like Bill O'Brien. I think Bill O'Brien's a terrific coach. I, I I mean he's proven it what he can do offensively as far as schematically and developing players. I mean what he did with Bryce Young and the way Bryce Young played last year was just phenomenal. Um, he used to coach at Georgia. He was an assistant at Georgia Tech long ago. So he's got the ties. Um, he's probably going to go back to the NFL. I would love to see him stay in college because I think he's, I, I think he's just a better, he's a better college guy because 
I think he enjoys being around young guys and kind of like developing young guys. Um, the NFL is a grind, I'm not saying college football isn't a grind. It's a big grind, um, more of a grind than the NFL, but I think he enjoys it. And, and he enjoyed his time at Penn state too, but I think he just wanted to get back to the NFL and he wanted to be a head coach in the NFL and see if he could, he could do it. And he won four division titles, which is another thing. I always hear about how he failed in the NFL. He won four division titles, man. Yep. So the guy can coach. I, I, I think he would be a great fit at Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech's got to get somebody that can, that is an offensive guy that can bring that offense into the 21st century and can change the way they do things there as far as football. They're still muddling around. Look, Paul Johnson did great things there, but I think he, he, he left too late and put them in a position where, look, they're now falling behind. And I, did, I thought Jeff Collins could, could at least get them back to, to mid-level, and they're just not there right now. Bill O'Brien was the exact name that I had uh, leading that group. And for all the reasons that you mentioned, and I, I think the the perception of him is so different within the sport and within locker rooms than it is based on what fans think. I th- 100%. The, he, yep. he might have the biggest discrepancy of, of coaches in terms of public opinion versus private opinion about just kind of who he is and what he is as an offensive mind. Um, another interesting one, I'm not Dan Mullen. I'm not Dan Mullen getting to a place where – Expectations will be low. We know that he can succeed with three-star talent. Georgia Tech, um, they're they're going to get the the occasional four-star. Obviously, being in that area, being in that state, but at the same time, like I kind of wonder about what would Dan Mullen do to get another crack at Kirby on an annual basis, not have the same sort of Florida, oh my gosh, sky is falling thing when you lose to Georgia, because obviously expectations right now are different in Georgia Tech. But that's that's one where I just think about, well, you need somebody to bring just the exact point you brought up, bring that offense into the new era. Dan Mullen could succeed with low expectations and do so in the ACC and not have to worry about getting SEC level talent every year. I, okay. I, I like, I like the argument you made there. And I like the fact that he clearly has had experience doing it at Mississippi state at a, at a lower level program where you're not going to get the elite recruits. I like all of that, but he's not taking that job if he, if he can get one in the next two. And that's really what the, the, the idea is there. So we, when we get to the next team, yeah. that's really going to make this con- this, this conversation interesting. Then we're going to talk about Dan Mullen. Okay. Auburn. Who's their coach right. in 2023? So let's preface this now, okay? On <laughs> let's preface this on Auburn hired a basketball coach who is at his three previous stops, got all three of them on probation. So Auburn doesn't care about problems. Auburn doesn't care about how it looks, who they hire. Auburn hasn't cared about that for 40 years. Auburn doesn't care that everybody knows that the board of trustees and Jimmy Rain, the power booster there. The, the Yellowwood, Southern Yellowwood guy run the program. They don't care that everybody knows that. They don't care. All they care about is winning football. Okay. Auburn is going to take a run at Herb. You wait and see. They oh, will. Man. They will take a run. I don't know that Herb's going to do it, but they will take a run at Herb. They will. Um, and if not Herb, then I think Dan Mullen. I, I think Dan Mullen is the guy that's probably the perfect fit there. Um, there you're, you're gonna you're gonna see people will push back on it because of his recruiting. Um, but you know, the whole thing when he's hired is Mullen is going to talk about how he's going to hire assistants that love to recruit and he's changed his philosophy on recruiting and he's realized that blah, blah, blah. You'll see all of that. Okay. So I think Mullen's probably the better is, is the, is the guy that Auburn's going to go after. He's probably a better fit. Like you said, at Georgia tech, 
But that's probably the guy that Auburn's going to go after because Auburn wants a name. Because if you're if you've got the 800 pound gorilla literally in the same state as you, and he's just killing everything in sight, you've got to do something, something to have some kind of juice, right? And the only way that the, the, the real juice you could get, I mean, imagine if they hired Herb Connor, seriously. Imagine if Auburn got Herb out of retirement or whatever he's called, whatever he's doing. I don't know if it's retirement or he, he just got fired, okay? Um, imagine if they hired Herb and you've got Herb and Nick in the same state, not only recruiting against each other, but going back and forth for oxygen in that state. Oh, my God. That would be just a, a, a phenomenal, a phenomenal thing for media, not only in the state of Alabama, but for across the United States. From a content standpoint. Yes. I that. mean, yes. I'm here from a fan standpoint, too. I mean, what could be better than that? Seriously. Because I, you could say all you want about Urban. He was a spectacular failure with the Jaguars. Believe me. I sat here and saw it every day. He just was just terrible. It was a colossal failure. But he knows how to win in college. And again, Auburn doesn't care what you think of them, okay? Auburn will do everything he can to help him win. So if he really wants to do it and he wants to get back into coaching and he wants to show that, look, what was there with the Jaguars, what you saw in those 11 games, or I can't remember how many games it was, 13 games. That's not me. Um, This is me. I mean, just imagine them hiring Irv. It would just be, my God, it would just be so beautiful. I, I don't think there's a chance or, or takes another big time college job. I think that's, I think that chapter is over. I think he kind of realized he saw some of his limitations. I think that that, that chapter of his life is, is gone. And the idea of signing up to compete against the likes of Saban and Kirby every year, because that's, that's the Auburn job is that that's what you have to assume you're walking into. You can't assume that Saban is going to retire. You can't assume that either of those programs are going to fall off. I don't think he's signing up for that because I think that's what, that's what he left. I think he saw kind of, the writing on the wall at Florida and who knows what it would have looked like long-term had he been able to stay and kind of fight through his, his personal demons, all those other things. I think that chapter of his life is over, but it'd be fascinating. Hugh Freeze is the guy that I thought you were going to get to. And I thought you were saying, Hey, they don't care. They'll fight Sankey. If there's any sort of resistance in that department. I mean, he literally took Auburn's leftovers and turned Malik Willis into one of the best quarterback prospects in the country, two victories over Saban. I mean, all the things that you brought up about not caring about somebody's past, just win. Uh, Hugh Freeze would be fascinating. I'm hardly the first, hardly the last person to say that. But anybody that Auburn hires is going to be fascinating. I mean, let, let's let's be real. It's going to be a content machine. Auburn Auburn always delivers in that department. So here's the thing with Hugh Freeze, okay? And I, I want to kind of delicately walk through this because I, I, I don't want it to sound like what I'm saying is – is, is uh, a little odd, okay? Let's just put it that way. Well, the problem that Hugh Freeze had at Ole Miss was the fact that he was cheating and got them on probation. It's the fact that players were getting paid, and it's also the fact that he willingly set in motion a, a, a story by leaking, leaking information that made it seem like it was all on Houston Nuts' watch so he could land this elite recruiting class that he had. That was the problem. It wasn't the massages, okay, which I think is what a lot of people think about. Look, I'm not – look, I don't care what people do in their life away from their job. It's their own life, right? I don't care what they do. If something happens in their marriage, it happens, and that's up to them. Uh, To me, it's the fact that they were paying players. Now, if you can get beyond that, 
if you can get beyond the idea of what he did trying to save that recruiting class, then yeah, Von Marvin, I agree with you. I think it's a great hire, a, a fantastic hire. The guy knows how to beat Saban. He's a terrific recruiter. He loves the SEC. He knows the SEC. Yeah, I think it would be a home run hire, actually. Um, and I think we're far enough away from that where you start to say, all right, again, this is this is kind of like what we were talking about earlier with, with Tennessee and their probation for paying players. Look, we're we're well down that road now, man. We are well down that road of paying players. So, and it's going to get even worse in a year or so when we start to direct pay for play. So I don't think you can look at that and say, we're going to hold that against him. And as far as the other stuff, who cares, man? It's his own life. Who cares? Yeah. If, uh, if Scott Frost were winning 10 games a year at Nebraska, nobody would care about his alleged infidelity, which has been like the worst kept secret in Lincoln. They'd just be like, Hey, continue to win football games for us. Nobody, nobody cares about that. You're our prodigal son. And that would probably be swept under the rug and said, it's not, um, that's the way that this works in the coaching business floor state based on the on three story that, uh, I read about this. Mike Norvell got an extension in 2021, but the buyout term stayed the same, and yep. which is a little bit Dan Mullen-y with the way that Scott Strickland set up that contract. They had started at a $5 million buyout, decreased by every season, which means that his buyout at the end of 2022 is only $3 million, according to that story, though we don't know the terms officially because that, that hasn't been released. And so if that buyout is indeed $3 bucks, I mean, that is nothing. If they fall out of relevance in October, that buyout is getting paid. So that I, I needed to, to preface the Florida State question with that because I think it's context worth remembering, even though obviously Willie Taggart, year two, Mike Norvell could be gone year three. So who is their coach in 2023? So here's what I would do. If you're Florida State, you, you, you're in a position right now where your brand is suffering. Your brand is suffering. And, and, and it's you start talking about conference expansion and how – you know, the Big Ten uh, and, and the SEC are looking to add teams. And you look at Florida State and what they've done. It's Florida State, you know, less than a decade ago was one of the top three brands in college football. It's not anymore. And it can go quickly in football. So if I'm Florida State and that happens and you spend your $3 million, you get out of it, uh, I, I think you've got to go big. You've got to hope that you can – Look, we're going to pay whatever you want. We're going to give you whatever you want. We're going to, we have this magnificent football facility that's being built. Um, we're going to do everything we can. I think you go after David Rand and just throw everything at him Love. and just say, and just say, look, we're desperate. We want you. We'll do whatever it takes. And, and if not David Rand, then I think my next move would be like Mark Stoops. Um, yep. May not be a flashy hire, but I love Stoops. I freaking love what he's done in Kentucky. Um, I love the fact that he's just a tough guy and his teams are tough. And I would love to see him at a program that has the inherent advantages in recruiting like Florida state does being in the state of Florida. Um, I would love to see him with a, just a talent rich team and see what happens then with his teams. The stoops thing is fascinating. Something that we've, we've talked about before on this, this podcast and I've, I've shared this story on our airways, but I don't, I don't know if I've told you this story about Florida State and the, the Stoops rumors that came about when the Norvell hire happened. Um, so, and again, the, many listening to this have heard me tell this story, so I apologize for repeating myself. But 
they 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 heard me say on Chuck Oliver's show that Mark Stoops was offered the Florida State job. If you remember, there were rumors that Stoops basically sat down at a table with them. He didn't feel like he was their top priority. He comes out, says, I'm not taking the Florida State job, blah, blah, blah. Um, this is where I want to be. The timing of this right now is interesting with the stuff that played out with Cal, basketball school versus football school. Everything's well documented there. Florida State called me and said, Mark Stoops was not offered the Florida State job. And I'm thinking to myself, why, why do you need to get this out there into the world? Why do you need me to know this information? That one of the 15 best coaches in the sport wasn't offered your job. And you need to tell me that Mike Norvell was your first coach. You really want me to believe that. Now, again, they could spin that as saying, well, we never really gave Mark Stoops the offer. We didn't have this interest in him. And yes, I get it. it. Coach, coach offers happen only when it's when it's about to be official and then right. the offer t- comes out. So they can, they can spin right. it that way. But just a weird, weird move on the part of Florida State to get that narrative out there. Well, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, think about where they've been, seriously. They had a coach, a successful coach who won a national championship leave because he didn't feel like they were committed enough to winning. Um, he wanted that football facility a lot sooner than they've started to build it. You know, he wanted other 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 financial commitments from them, uh, coaching staff, his salary and and the coaching staff salary didn't get it. So he left, you know, their their point of view on that is he was trying to leave anyway. He'd been trying to leave for a few years. I, I can see all that. Then you hired you hired Willie, who honestly, the mess you walked into was ridiculous. And, and it's just anybody would have failed. Anyone would have um, just all the stuff that was going on there, the entitlement, the academic issues. um, it was a tough hoe for anyone. And then they get on the field and they're terrible. And I can still remember the game in, against the Gators in Tallahassee when um, when uh, the Florida DB literally is looking at the FSU sideline telling them they're one guy short. Yep. You're one guy short here, man. And that kind of did it, I think. That kind of like encapsulated everything for everyone. So then he goes, Mike Norrell gets in there. And before you know it, you're like, you know what? Six weeks into his job, COVID hits. And it's a, you know... He's put into a difficult situation because he can't face to face with his kids for six months. You know, then he's got all these limitations of how you're building a program. He made a great point to me at the uh, spring meetings in, in Amelia Island this year. He said, this past spring, they finished up their first full normal schedule of recruiting, play a season, spring ball recruiting. Their first normal season of it. So it, I, I think that has to be taken into consideration. Now, the, the obvious counterpoint to that is, well, everybody else is doing that too. And there are other teams that are winning 10, 11 games or winning a conference. And I agree with that too. I totally agree with that too. But not everyone was in a situation that he was put in where he was cleaning up two messes. Now that said, I'm with you. They don't go to a bowl game or if they go six and six, I don't think he makes it. I just don't. I, I, I think they can't, be in a situation where their brand continues to lose ground. One of the best week one games, Utah, traveling to, to the swamp, taking on Florida. It's something we'll see a lot more of with the likely playoff expansion, the boosting of these non-conference schedules in the latter half of the decade. You wrote about Utah for Saturday Out West and specifically why this year is so make or break for them in terms of becoming a viable option for the Big Ten, which SEC fans are listening to this. Going, why, why do we want to talk about Utah? 
just kind of just want to talk about Utah because he hasn't been in the playoff, maybe a little bit, but this, this dynamic is interesting for understanding the future of, of college athletics, how conference realignment is kind of working right now. Explain kind of what you meant by that and why this year is so pivotal for Utah. So first off, I, I think we need to, I think we need to look at the, the, the foundation of, we clearly know there's going to be two conferences moving forward that are head and shoulders above the others. And, and it may end up being, it may end up being, and I think it's, we're getting closer with each, with each move uh, of, with each paradigm move right now that we're seeing in the last month, uh, last year, I should say, it may end up being a simple AFC versus NFC, Big Ten versus SEC. And then you have a, you know, you have the playoff and the other teams that don't, aren't part of those conferences, whether they're 20 teams or 18 teams or 22 teams, they're in another division and they're playing on their own. They have their own playoff, just like the FCS. So, um, if it does get to that point, then I think you have to look at it this way. I know the SEC has talked about they want contiguous states or whatever you want to call it. They're going to go out west too because they're not going to they're not going to just cede the west to the Big Ten. Why would you do that? Why would you just cede the market of Phoenix to to the Big Ten or a market like Salt Lake City to the Big Ten or you know somewhere out you know Northern California? Why would you just cede that to them? And I don't think you're going to. So I think the SEC now, and they have game planned this at, at multiple levels of what 20 teams looks like, what 22 teams looks like, what 24 teams looks like. Um, so th- this is not, we are a long way, I guess is the best way to put it, from this thing being over. Now, all of that said, if you're Utah, and at the end of the day, this is going to come down to, it, certainly television, television will play a role, okay? Television markets, and their markets like in the 30s, I believe, which is pretty good. Um, it's about winning and it's about brand. And Utah is right on the cusp, right on the cusp, Connor, of becoming a team where all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, Utah. Oh yeah. And first off, they are, If I don't know if you've ever watched, if you've ever been to a game there or you've ever watched games there, they are literally an SEC school out West. It's great. They, their fans are nuts. And I mean, nuts, man. And, and it's a 55,000 seat stadium. It's a nice facility. Um, it's the old Olympic stadium that they use for the Olympics and they retrofitted it and all that. And they've done uh, additions uh, over the last, you know, 10, 15 years, but they are about as close to an SEC school as you can get. Um, they're, they're an association of American university school, which the big 10 loves. They love okay? that. Yep. And, and I, and the big 10 right now is looking for good football playing schools. Now, of course the big 10, the obvious move is Stanford because Stanford fits perfectly with their values. All right. But after that, after that, it's Oregon, it's Washington, it's Cal, um, it's Utah. And if you're Utah, you start the season with a big win in Gainesville um, on the road at an SEC school. You back up your Pac-12 championship, win it again. You get to the playoff. Suddenly, you've got momentum. You were in the Rose Bowl a year earlier. You're in the playoff now. Suddenly, you, you, are, a different, you are a different person now for the Big Ten when, you start, when the Big Ten starts looking at, okay, what do we do? Who do we add? You now have momentum. You clearly now are among the lead in college football. If you make this move and you make the playoff, you have them making the playoff, as you said. Um, that's going to be very difficult for the Big Ten to say, yeah, I don't think we're going to take Utah because it fits everything they want as far as academics, but it also gives them a major potential football player. Okay. And that's why I said, if you're the SEC, I don't know that you can wait. I just don't know that you can sit there and wait and think, all right, well, we're happy at 16. 
And we'll just let the Big Ten take Stanford, take Washington, take Oregon, take Utah. I don't know that you can do that. If we are truly at this point where it's going to be 20 teams or 22 teams or 24 teams, and it's like the AFC versus the NFC, you got to go get some people, man. You can't be ending up with Oklahoma State. No offense to Oklahoma State, okay? You can't be ending up with, with Texas Tech and, and you know, uh, Arizona State just because it fits like some kind of geographical footprint. You got to go get the best the best possible additions for your conference. It's all about value. Who adds value to your conference? And if Utah is hot, if Utah won the Rose Bowl, then Utah gets to the playoff. That suddenly is a lot more value than it was two or three years ago. And I think the only pushback on the on the SEC waiting in terms of expansion is the, the grant of rights deal that locks in those ACC schools until 2036. If we heard something about that tomorrow, that changes the entire conversation about the SEC stance. And suddenly they have a group of teams that they would be heavily pursuing. But at the same time, it is a balance because if so you're the all big sudden, 10, by the way, Connor, the big it, 10's gonna, yes. they're going to go after Miami too. So it's not just, and they'll go after North Carolina. So sure. it's not just the SEC with the ACC. So that my point is, if they're locked in until 2036, and I don't know how other teams get out of that, I just don't know that you see that. What It's more along the lines of you're seeding you're seeding time slots to have games. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Seeding that late, that late uh, game window. All right. And I, I just don't know that you can, and, and the SEC has games at nine. Sometimes LSU will play at nine. It's rare, but sometimes they will. Um, but you're, you're basically giving the big 10 that entire window of games. And I just don't know that you can do that right now. And as the SEC saw in week one, it's electric when you've got a game at 1030 Eastern time kicking off and everybody can tune in and watch Vandy just dominate Hawaii. There's something to be said about having that time. <laughs> At a high school stadium, no less. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, last one for you. What is more likely, Georgia repeats or Clemson wins it all? Uh, Georgia repeats. I'm a, is that I, because I, you have Kirby as your number one coach in the country? Over- <laughs> uh, you know what it is? Honestly, it's and I wrote about this today in First and Ten on Saturday Down South. I just... I think Alabama's going to win it, okay? I do. I just have an issue with who's at receiver for them. But, like, we're just automatically assuming that Jermaine Burton's going to be a great number one. Tyler we're Harrell. automatically assuming that Tyler Harrell's going to be this impact guy, you know, at receiver. We're assuming that Ja'Cory Brooks is going to start playing consistently. You know, we're assuming that Treshawn Holden will be more than a possession guy or that JoJo Earl will be healthy when he comes back in six to eight weeks. Who do they have that he's throwing the ball to? That's number one. And number two, I think as important, we saw in the last three games of last season, when the idea of who you're throwing to gets limited because of injuries, that offense changes. And I broke it down. And, you, you know, go read it Saturday Down South. I broke it down. You look at what happened in the SEC championship game after Mechie got hurt. You look at what happened in the, in the uh, playoff semifinal against Cincinnati when Bryce Young had his worst game of the season, throwing the ball. Then you look at what happened in the national championship game once Mechie got hurt. They're a different team without an elite receiver out there. Now, granted, the argument is easily, well, everyone's a different team without an elite receiver, and I agree with that. But the reality is you're now moving into a season where you're banking on two guys who have 70, 60 or 70 career catches and Jermaine Burton and Tyler Harrell to be elite guys for you or, or – Corey Brooks, who I believe had 13 catches last year or 15 catches and 11 in the last three games. So, I, I mean, to me, I look at that and think, all right, I agree with you. Best offensive player, best defensive player, best coach. 
But who are they throwing the ball to, man? And, and that, that's kind of what I say was if, if they win the national title this year with so much uncertainty at wide receiver, this will be Nick's best job, and it'll be Bill O'Brien. Will everybody want to hire Bill O'Brien after that? I'm pretty sure Georgia this past year was the first team to win a title without a first round receiver. If I'm not, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Yeah. Um, and you know, you, say what you want about Pickens, like who could he be healthy or first team in the playoff era? Maybe that's what it was, even though Mike Thomas, I guess, wasn't, I don't know. There, there's something in there. There's a, a definitive stat that I had last year. I remember about, you need to have that first round. Receiver but to be fair, to Brock Bauer. I mean, you know, yeah. you, you know, you you literally have a tight end who will be a top, I don't know, 15 pick. You got another tight end who also will be a first round pick. So it's not like that's the only option for them. And let's not forget the, the rugger, Lad McConkey, who, you know, had a pretty good season last year. Shout out to my buddy Perry, who keeps <laughs> going higher and higher on Lad McConkey. He says 2,000 yards this year from scrimmage. Uh, all in. The, the Lad McConkey hype train has left the station. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're they're all in on Lad, dude. Trust me, there he's blowing things up in uh, in George's camp. It's been a <laughs> been a good start for the lad. <laughs> hey, I look. Yeah, I think he's a, I, he's a really good college player, man. Yes, he gets open and he catches the ball. Which look at the receiver position at any level of football, get separation, catch the ball, two biggest things, and that's what he does. Yeah, Stetson loves him off play action. That's the that's the formula for him. Uh, Matt, you're the man. Um, you can find all Matt's work Saturday Road, Saturday Tradition, Saturday Down South, Saturday at West, all of those great sites. Matt does a ton, a ton of great stuff for us. Uh, really appreciate it, man. We'll talk soon. All right, Connor. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. How about this one? I call it bold and bright. More like belongs in the trash. <laughs> Sorry, I must have missed that one. Bold and Brash, week one edition. I think I've already given all of my week one predictions. The front part of this pod was a lot. I have one more, though. I am going to overeat on Saturday. Yep. Calling it. Not bold, not brash. Should be a great time at Mercedes-Benz. I'm really looking forward to it. Great place to watch a game. I'm very jealous of Atlanta that you guys have a venue that good. And I, I say this as somebody who has been, to, you know, I've been in the Citrus Bowl with Camping World Stadium, whatever you want to call it now. I've been in the Citrus Bowl a decent amount. Soldier Field doesn't move the needle for me or anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I love Mercedes-Benz. It's, it's awesome. I, I don't know why I didn't travel to the SEC Championship last year which means I haven't been to a game there since 2019. We had a media event there for media mm-hmm. days a few months ago, but I haven't been there for a game in three years, almost three years now. So that'll be, I'm really looking forward to that. Looking forward to spending some time with my guys, spending some time with my guys, Candler, Perry. Should be a great weekend with the lads, watching a ton of football, eating a lot of food. Well, I need to the- warn you before you get here, because the reason why half of my group will not be going to this game is because Dragon Con, you know what Dragon Con is? Oh, I saw it in the opener in 2019. Oh, yes. man. Dragon Con is that. here once again. Okay. Oh, so just if you boy. see some people with some tails, I will. Yep. Just be aware. We're not like this all the time, but half of my group is. <laughs> oh, gosh. So just what were you going to say? What's, what's your Saturday setup with you uh, traveling to New Orleans for the LSU game? Oh man, I mean we got dude, we're flying into Baton Rouge. We're gonna stay at my Baton Rouge place and then we're gonna we're gonna open up a bar. We're gonna we figured out where it where when it opens, we're gonna be there with some big jugs of water, like ready to like ready to watch college football. 
water. We're good. Oh, yeah, because we're going to be hungover. <laughs> we're going to pull up at this bar with my buddies at like 10.30 a.m. when they open and we're just going to squat on a table and just be ordering food all Wait day. A Wait a minute. I'm doing I'm doing some math here. I'm Friday. So you're saying you're going to be hungover Saturday morning. Oh, That's yeah. Your, okay. If you're hungover Saturday morning, that implies you're getting after it Friday. Right. Understandable. Getting after it Friday, all day Saturday. You got to have enough energy left in the tank on Sunday night, man. You, oh, you got to pace yourself this week. I, I, the sound, just the LSU horns going bum, 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 bum. It's like a max revive from Call of Duty. I get it. I feel like I could get hit by a bus and get in, like, like, like crawl in the stadium and hear that and just be up on my feet, like ready to go. <laughs> I just want you this weekend to have, have yourself a Toby Keith moment. Mm-hmm. Not, not how do you like me now? Not that. I was that's about not, to say, no, I'm no, prepared no. for that. No, that's not the type of energy we need. We need, I ain't as good as I once was. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. You know, it's Keep been two mind. years for your boy since I went to an SEC game. <laughs> so pacing, that's, that's figuring it out right there. Exactly. Exactly. That's the key. Uh, let's go to the Facebook group. We've got a lot of responses in the Saturday on South podcast, Facebook group for bold and brash week one predictions. Let's go to this one from Peyton White. Speaking of LSU, Peyton says LSU will go undefeated and have a top three finalist at linebacker. Mike Jones. Who? <laughs> Uh, and then I'll have a fake girlfriend. Di- oh, okay. We're getting into Manti Teo ter- territory here. Um, okay. Um, I-, I guess people are still making Manti Teo jokes. We have disavowed that. We're, we're moving on in this phase in life. Um, <laughs> only serious week one predictions moving forward. That's on me. Should have proofread that one. Uh, let's go to this one from uh, Trey Beckton. Trey says, Florida wins late with a field goal and Arkansas destroys Cincinnati. The swamp would be incredible if that happened. I almost, mm-hmm. I almost think to myself, <laughs> this is going to sound twisted. Florida fans are gonna, very much going to disagree with this. In terms of Billy Napier and, and expectations, might not be the worst thing in the world if you lose a one-score game to Utah. Mm-hmm. Those expectations, if they were to win in that fashion, would be off the charts. Off the charts would be great for recruiting, probably, and it's all about talent acquisition. So maybe that would that would yield uh, the result that Florida fans are looking for. But at the same time, ooh, the expectations, man, it would be really tough to slow down that hype train if you start off the season by beating this Utah team and then Arkansas too. Arkansas destroys Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, that see that one's kind of dumb to me because both of those teams I feel like should be ranked a little bit higher. And if Cincinnati was anything but a G five team, which as we saw last year they didn't play like one, they beat Notre Dame. But if they were anything but a G five team, they'd be at least ranked in the top fifteen. Arkansas, if Arkansas was Auburn or even Ole Miss, they'd True. probably be higher. Yeah, so it's it's dumb that both of those teams are ranked so low, right? Because if this was like a top fifteen, top twenty matchup, it, it would feel totally different, and it should because they had great seasons last year. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. And Arkansas destroying Cincinnati, we would kind of chalk up to Cincinnati's got a lot of turnover, new look team after last year, and, mm-hmm. and it would and it would still be like, okay, that's what you would expect an SEC team to do at home. But I think that would be really, really impressive if we saw that play out. All right, let's let's go to uh, Sarthik Sharma. Sar- uh, Sarthik says LSU loses a close one because of quarterback play. It'll take a few games for that team to figure itself out. And Florida State just got in a tune-up game already. Yes, they did. Um, if LSU loses, it doesn't, it shouldn't change anything in terms of Brian Kelly's long-term outlook. Mm-hmm. If LSU loses the jokes that are going to come in that game Sunday night when that's all anybody's watching, they'll mm-hmm. be out in full force. 
you, you won't be don't don't do the drinking game for every time you see a Brian Kelly dancing tweet. Okay. Your liver doesn't deserve that kind of punishment. Don't do mm-hmm. it to yourself. That's the tough thing with playing some of these these primetime games like that. We talked about that with Nebraska when everybody's watching. If that's just kind of mixed in a Saturday, you don't have yep. everybody in the college football world pointing and laughing at you for four days straight like yep. we've been doing. But I I think LSU is still able to win to, to win that game. Who knows if Florida State's going to look like a juggernaut. It's so t- it feels like it's such a it's such a weird thing to talk about Florida State's outlook in this day and age because it's it's just changed so drastically. Their their identity is just non-existent, mm-hmm. absolutely non-existent. Maybe it will be this year, and Mike Norvell will all of a sudden get, get an extension. We talked about that a little bit in the Hayes interview, but um, yeah, just a, a, a strange game to try and figure out. And I bet the organizers of this game thought it was going to look so different when they set it up way back oh, in yeah. the day. Let's go to this one from Michael Dark. He says, Georgia easily covers and three different tight ends score. We didn't talk about this. Eric Gilbert totaled his white Mercedes. Hopefully the kid's doing all right. Yeah, Eric Gilbert totaled his white Mercedes. Not great. Not, not the poor thing guy, like man. Yeah, he's just been through so much. Like, no troll whatsoever. It's just, I feel so bad for him. Yeah, some of that stuff, you think, okay, yeah, that's within your control. Other things, maybe not as much. Mm-hmm. I, I have no legitimate idea how the Eric Gilbert story ends up. I don't. The spring game was fun. Seeing that kid mm-hmm. get out there, especially after here after the game, Kirby talking about the guy blew up to 300 pounds, dealing with his issues and what was essentially a redshirt year two for him. Um, I, I It would be great to, to see that guy get to celebrate, get to have that kind of moment. He, he didn't say the specific tight ends, though. So maybe he's talking about Oscar Delp, for all we know, who is – I'm just going to declare it. This is going to be, again, big game boomer. I'm going to rank the the best fourth string tight ends in college football. I'm going to say Oscar Delph is number one. <laughs> and yeah, not a close second. I don't know if LSU has four tight ends right yeah. now. <laughs> Who carries four tight ends in this day and age? Uh, yeah, but I, that's that's not a bad prediction at all. Hopefully Brock Bowers is healthy to start off the year. That's That, mm-hmm. that would be a, a welcome sight to see him kind of look like himself week one. Uh, we've already done a lot of LSU Florida State um let's do Ooh, this is bold uh jonathan blanchard says oregon outlasts georgia in overtime and bo nix gets a win over the bulldogs finally gets a win over the bulldogs if bo nix beats georgia you you will be able to see that chest puffed out from where you are in new orleans mm-hmm. you talk about a, a kid who would be feeling himself after what he has endured going against that George defense the first three years, running for his life, he would be the story of college football if he did that. I just can't close my eyes and see it. I just mm-hmm. can't. Maybe, maybe Bonix is going to be the best version of himself. Maybe he can he can have a a Felipe Franks like chapter in his career to kind of close his career the way that Felipe did at Arkansas. But and start a long, productive NFL career as a tight end. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> who knows? You bet mm-hmm. on that athleticism. Felipe, you watch. Felipe is going to come back and he's going to be 28 and he's going to be working his way through the minor leagues as a pitcher. <laughs> and he's just going to be throwing 95. Because remember, he got drafted by the Red Sox. People forget that. Mm-hmm. He's going to, like, that's going to be the Felipe Frank story. So he's going to be part of the, the college football lexicon for. For, for several more years. He, he will be. He absolutely will be. Uh, let's go to uh, this one from Drew Page. 
the Mormons will roll into Gainesville and their heads will explode immediately when they see women that wear shorts and alcohol. So they're phrasing. Um, <laughs> the women don't basically wear the the they, the the, yeah. the 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 environment of the SEC and all of its unwholesomeness will shock them. And you know, I've thought about that. I've been thinking a lot about this game. I don't think it's going to happen. But you know, it, Gainesville is an incredible college town. I love it, and I just don't think this is going to sound super elitist. But just don't think they have stuff like that in the back twelve. I really don't, especially USC, with USC and down. UCLA. I mean, not with them down as listen, talking to a guy whose team lost at the Rose Bowl still was not a good environment. So point being like, I think, you know, that home field will matter. I think that's what Florida has going for them. For sure. They are. Cam Rising came from Texas, so he's seen some stuff. All right. He's probably seen bigger high school stadiums than some of the ones in the back 12 then. Probably. Very, very true. Uh, Let's go to. Oh, gosh. Zachary Warden says Tennessee survives overtime against Ball State. And derails almost all of their offseason momentum. They still go to a nine and four season. 35 and a half point favorite. That would be, oh my God, sky is falling. College football has such a unique way, more so than the NFL, um, more so than college basketball for sure, of week one just totally throwing a narrative out the window. Mm-hmm. And the best example is that 2019 Tennessee team who everybody was talking about kind of on the rise. Jared Garantano is going to be able to figure things out at quarterback. But college football has such a unique way to have a week one damper. And some team, I should say plural, some teams are going to throw out everything they heard for the last eight months as the mm-hmm. result of some stunning opening weekend game. That's, that is going to happen. Just hope that you can avoid that. If you're if you're a fan base listening to this podcast, just hope that your team avoids that because there is something so deflating. Go ask Nebraska fans about that. Go ask them what it's like to watch Kirk Herbstreit say that they're going to win the Big Ten West and then go watch them lose to Northwestern in Dublin. There is something so deflating about seeing your team lose that week one game and then realize, oh, this year's going to suck. <laughs> It's bad. Coming up, talking to a survivor of two of those years in a row, by the way. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Let's back up. Let's back up. 2021 was... UCLA. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. I was going to say 2021 had tempered expectations, but you're... No, they, they didn't. They really didn't. They you're right. UCLA. Well, right. I've told the story, but not to like do this whole thing, but Brittany was installing a fridge during that 2020 yeah. uh, LSU-Mississippi State game. And to this day, she doesn't understand why that was the wrong time to do that. Like, We're giving up 50 right now. I haven't seen us lose in two years. That's <laughs> one of the funniest things. <laughs> I totally know how that goes. Yeah, you don't want to be that guy week one. You don't. You just don't. Let's end with this one from Mitch Aldridge. Mitch says, Mercer leads at the half. Uh, Mercer plays Auburn. <laughs> I hope. You know, maybe I, we should. <laughs> no, no. You know what? Auburn fans, you have been through enough. I would not wish that on my worst enemy. You have been through enough. Mm-hmm. You don't need to have everybody and their mother making fun of you. You don't need to have everybody and their mother planning out Auburn replacements at halftime. I realize we already did that on this podcast. Pretend that I didn't just say that. <laughs> See, we were everybody <laughs> <and their mother. laughs> You don't need that type of pain to watch that team go through that against an FCS team. They shouldn't. Okay. They shouldn't. We have questions about the offensive line. We still feel really good about Tank Bixby. We still feel really good about John mm-hmm. Hunter. They shouldn't be in that spot. They just shouldn't. But if they were, oh man, 
the internet, I, I got a good reminder of just how much the internet piles on in embarrassing situations in that week zero Nebraska Northwestern game. Yeah, I mean, that was so bad, though. Oh. I mean, that was like, I understand what this means. I get it. That was still one of the worst Scott Frost losses of us. I think onside kick was trending, which is I, a hard like, thing to do. That, like, literally just losing in a regular way is like whatever. He's lost in some weird ways, too. To choose that, like, with no one, no defense to that play. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Lots of bold, bold predictions. I'm sure we're going to have somebody hit. Somebody's going to hit in that group. I feel mm-hmm. I feel very good about that, and we'll be talking about that on Sunday. Um, let's end oh, with- really quick. Randall Houston, thank you for putting all like all of the oh, yes. things. We love to see that we can't get to all of them, um, but but yeah, I, I just I appreciate everyone that dropped stuff in the group, and I really appreciate the effort that you guys put in this stuff. Yes, thank you very much to everybody who submitted responses. If you have enjoyed the Saturday Down South podcast Facebook, you should totally do that. Lad of the week, who do you got? Well, oh man. <laughs> So I have Florida A&M coach Willie Simmons. Uh, so I don't know if you watched any of the uh, debut of our boy Eugene Chizik, the of man, course. the myth, the legend. Uh, but there was a weird situation that happened with Florida A&M. Won't get into all that. There were some protests. There were eligibility issues. Basically, they were down 23 players, including one starter. So yeah. all of their depth was gone. They were walking out. I mean, just an absolute unit at DT. They had some people that had no business playing. And I remember you know, looking at their coach and him just looking like he was watching his dog, like eat something bad. Like he was walking out and he was just like, I can't believe this. This is horrible. Like usually you see the coach like week one and he's like fired up. Like he's got a little bit of that swagger going. This boy, William Simmons was completely devastated on the sidelines walking in, but you know what he did? He rallied. He got himself together. He had a little talk with God. He sat down, gave a prayer. And then from that moment, it was all business. And I'll say A&M, Floyd A&M, represented themselves really well on Saturday. They were, I mean, I don't think they were led, but they were tied. They were going back and forth with, um, you know, one of the better coaching staffs, you know, talking about Mac Brown, former national champian. The best the coaching staff. That, yeah. Yes. Yes. So exactly. Talk about G, another national champion. So, you know, they, and, and they have, you know, the quarterback may apparently his entire family have like statues at, at UNC. It's like, oh, yes. oh well, yeah. Like it, it was just this crazy montage. And I thought UNC was going to come out there and blow them out. But no, I mean, so Willie Simmons, uh, former Clemson quarterback, um, just absolute lad of the week, was dealt an unwinnable hand. Uh, his team almost didn't travel, you know, so he had to be a leader. He had to get everybody together. He had to make a decision, you know, get the team to make a decision in the face of, you know, not only having guys miss out on, you know, some of the best years of their life, but also talking about a bye game where his university could have stood to void contracts, lose a bunch of money. He didn't manage that situation, and he came out there and balled. His team really represented themselves well. The game obviously got away from late, as it often does when you're missing, you know, 20 plus players as an facing a Gene Chizik defense. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. The Gene Chizik, you know, he had the last laugh for sure, but I just want to give these guys credit because they really played their butts off. They did. They absolutely did. And uh, you know, I, some podcasters might've come on in a preview pod and said that, that UNC was going to look like the 85 bears. Um, <laughs> I don't know who would do that, but uh, Rome wasn't built in a day. So just like, just chill. Chizik's going to have everything. He's going to have the lads um, whipped in shape real soon. Might've might've just been given some sympathy points. Wanted to have some stuff on film to be able to coach up, co- coach up that defense and make sure that they weren't necessarily just taking it easy. It's all, mm-hmm. it's, it's all, it's all just mind games. It's all point. a mind game. Yeah. He has it set is. those boys up for success later down the road. Gosh, I'm going to have to come up with a lot of spin zones if they're going to be that bad. They won't be, though. They won't be. They're going to be better than that. Uh, my lad of the week. Uh, I, by the way, I should have said 
last of the week instead of Ladat. Shout out to Robert Fellows for pointing that out. Yes. I may or may not have, but definitely did misunderstand what a Ladat was. Googled that one after the fact. So um, if we have a woman for Lad of the Week, we'll do last of the week. Just makes okay. a little bit more sense. My Lad of the Week, though, Brian Robinson. Talked about him earlier. If you didn't see, the former Alabama running back was shot multiple times in a carjacking incident. He is in stable condition, thankfully. Ron Rivera said they're expecting him to return this season. It sounds like, and I heard NFL Network, they were talking about this. He got really lucky in terms of where he was shot and how much worse it could have been because it didn't hit any any bone or tendon or anything like that in his knee, just from a football perspective, in addition to obviously being able to survive getting shot multiple times. Um, it, it's a real shame for Brian Robinson, obviously, uh, from a personal standpoint, having, mm. having to deal with that. And from a football perspective this guy waited till year five to be the guy at bama and was having mm-hmm. a really impressive preseason for the commanders that dude is so tough and i gained a ton of respect for him late in the season last year when we knew he was super banged up and he still averaged 24 touches in those final five games not an easy thing to do with the defenses that they were facing two of those defenses were, were georgia of course cincinnati it feels like nobody ever roots you were talking about this earlier it feels like nobody ever really roots for the bama running back and everyone kind of wants to see them fail and bust in the NFL. But between Najee, Damian Harris, Josh Jacobs, Derrick Henry, and then B-Rob, Bama's mm-hmm. running backs in the NFL have never been easier to root for. I don't care who you are. A lot of, a lot of guys you can root for. Uh, I'll be a Brian Robinson fan for life, given what that guy has had to endure. And I hope that he's able to make a full recovery and and have his, his, his shine in the NFL because he absolutely deserves it. He's worked his tail off to get to this point. Hundred percent. Yeah, okay. that's, that's such a such a tough story. And yeah, that whole franchise, man, it's just they just bad thing after bad thing up there. I don't know what's going on, but you know, you find you find this little bright spot for them. And it's like, yeah. oh, I get to root for this guy. It's like, no, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, a lot of a lot of tough breaks would be a really really rough franchise to have to root for, uh, a la the Chicago Bears. Yeah, we know that pain all too well. Mm-hmm. We will record on Sunday morning. Like I said, the pod should be up Sunday afternoon, recapping week one. So excited for the weekend ahead. Give us a five-star review. Subscribe to this podcast. Join the Facebook group here named Red On Air with Figuring Out or Bold and Brash. Thanks, guys. Talk soon. Talk soon.